Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Afraid of clowns. Whether or not you are afraid of clowns, why do you think people are afraid of clowns? Because this is a very real fear. There are horror movies made. Obviously, It is probably the best example, but there's Killer Clowns from Outer Space and many others. There are horror movies made with clowns as the villain. Because so many people are afraid of clowns. And it is Halloween, and I thought a lot of people might be interested in exploring what makes people tick in terms of fear, in terms of horror specifically, and in terms of clowns. Because I know quite a few folks that are afraid of clowns, but it was one of those things that I don't know if it ever really had a reason. You know, I mean... Um, spiders, I can see people being afraid of. I'm not afraid of spiders, but you can see it because they they sneak right up on you. And before you know it, one of them is crawling behind you. Might even crawl on the back of your neck. It could even bite you. I can understand that. I can understand why people might be afraid of rats. They carry disease. They They can bite as well from time to time. And they just revel in garbage. I understand why people are afraid of bats, but I think that is largely a a reflection of a creation that cinema and horror movies have created where vampires turn into bats. Uh, Bats are always hanging out in evil people's lairs. It kind of contributes to an overall aura of spookiness. But when it comes to clowns, I know a lot of people are afraid of clowns. But I never really understood why. I'm curious, one, if you are, and two, if you have a theory as to why. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Because it's interesting. There is an article in the Washington Post today, and a psychology professor has been studying this issue. He's been teaching about phobias. He teaches a class on phobias, and at the start of every semester, he asks his students the same question. What are you afraid of? And students name uh, snakes, claustrophobic spaces, but there's a consistent minority that says 
that they're terrified of clowns. Now, this man is very well respected. He's an associate professor of psychology at the University of South Wales, and he wanted to know why. So he and his colleagues began researching calrophobia, or a fear of clowns. And although the prevalence of clown phobia isn't clear, listen to this. One recent survey in the United States found that about 5% of the population said they were afraid or very afraid of clowns. Tyson's team used their own surveys to identify more than 500 people who suffered from clown fear and then asked them to rate their feelings about clowns. How often did they think of clowns? What would they do if they encountered a clown on the street? How long have they feared those red-nosed jokesters? And I'm going to give you his findings, but I'm curious if you have a reason why you're afraid of clowns. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Now, the nature of phobias is such that it's irrational, right? Um, if you're terrified of something without a rational reason to be terrified of it, you don't necessarily have an easy way of explaining it unless it results unless it's the byproduct of some childhood trauma. Maybe your parents dragged you to the circus when you were five years old and a clown snuck up on you and sprayed water in your face out of his flower and that freaked you out a little bit. But beyond that, sometimes this could be hard to explain. That's why I was so interested in this and I've been waiting uh, for it to be Halloween for me to bring it to your attention. Because this may very well have been a first-of-its-kind study focusing on the origins of clown fear. And this team from the University of South Wales noticed some distinct patterns in the group. They called the, – the, the, they published this paper. It's called Fear of Clowns, an Investigation into the Ideology – well, I'm not even sure if that's how it's pronounced – A-E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Eight. Ideology, ideology of caltrophobia. My apologies if that's the improper pronunciation. So it was published in the Frontiers of Psychology. And while the research is not based on a representative sample of the population, the findings offer some insights into the reasons some people are afraid of clowns. 800-848-9222 if you want to give your take, though. Here's one of the most surprising findings, though, is that for a lot of people... Having a scary personal experience with a clown, like being freaked out by a clown at um, at uh, the circus when you were five years old, it was not a main contributor to the fear. According to Professor Tyson, people said they were creeped out by clowns for other reasons. And I'd like to get to the bottom of this because, honestly, I love clowns. I think clowns are a lot of fun. I've had friends that have been clowns, and they're great people. If uh, when my son gets a little older and he has birthday parties, I would have no hesitation about having a clown at his uh, birthday party. I don't think my wife is afraid of clowns. I gotta double check with her. She, I gotta, I gotta check with her. But as for, I, I would, if it were up to solely me, I would love to have a clown at his birthday party, as long as it's not that creepy clown Pennywise from the Stephen King novel It and from the movie It. Where are you going, Ed? If you lived here, you'd be home by now. Come join the clown, Ed. You'll float down here. We'll float down here. Yes, we do. 
<laughs> now that's a scary clown. Pennywise is scary. Everybody else, what are they so scary for? Why are you scared if you are? 800-848-9222. These are the, I'll give you the reasons that they came up with, but I'd much rather hear yours. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Mary Beth on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Good morning. Morning. Um, I do remember as a child not liking them. And I think it was like the painted face and like, you know, the big shoes and things like that. That was frightening. But um, but why are big shoes frightening rather than funny? It, well, I guess some children would find it funny. I happen to find it like a little like scary. I don't know why. It just seemed very weird. But what, what I really called about was I did a story um, for Newsday God, over 23 years ago, about the Big Apple Circus clowns who came to Schneider's Children's Hospital, which is now called something else, to entertain the children on the ward. And they came, I think, once a month. And the children adored them. The parents adored them. The um, staff. It brought incredible merriment to a very sad situation. And I'm trying for the life of me to remember what the clowns were dressed like. I know they didn't have any face paint on. Um, I guess like happy looking ties with like bright flowers on them. But the way they interacted with the children was so beautiful. I mean, you know, they did little jokes and tricks for the children, but they talked to the children and really listened to the children and the parents. And when I first heard I was going to do this story, I had no idea what the clowns were going to look like, if the kids were going to like them. But every single child responded favorably to them because the clowns were educated how to treat the children and how to talk to the children and now not to approach them too closely unless the child called them over. It really was a very, very moving story. Very, very. Well, that know. is. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I love hearing that, but I can't say that I'm surprised Mary Beth, because in my experience, the people that I know have been clowns, they are really great people, and they go into clowning because they have a real love for entertaining mm-hmm. children. Mary Beth, thanks for sharing that. Obviously, there are always exceptions, but for every John Wayne Gacy, there's 10,000 uh, bozos. And I mean, you know, bozo the clown, not actual bozos. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what this uh, this rep- this uh, psychologist from South Wales came up with. Meaning this is the response that he got from people that said they were afraid of clowns. And I'm curious if any of this drives with you. Uh, Matt Blaze, are you afraid of clowns at all? I- no, I think it depends on the clown makeup is could be scary. Like I was thinking about that clown doll in Poltergeist. That was sitting in the chair, and then it attacked the kid. I'm I'm trying to picture that. I, I it's been a while since I've seen oh, yeah. Yeah, Poltergeist. The, it was like the the clown is sitting in the chair, and it, it's dark, and the and the kids looking yeah, at, it, and yeah. he threw his sweatshirt over it, right? And okay, then it was right. missing, and then it attacked him. Like that's a scary looking clown. But generally, makes clown makeup isn't scary. I always looked at clowns as being fun as a kid. I can understand though why people are afraid of them. Well, here's what people said, according to uh, Dr. Tyson here. 
you never really know what a clown is thinking. It can be difficult to know what's really going on in the mind of a clown with a painted on smile or a painted on frown. I get that. I get that. I would not have thought of that, but I get that. Apparently, there's something about not being able to read facial expressions that people find disconcerting. And that the fact that there might be something hidden or dangerous, there might be harmful intent behind that makeup. Clowns are, and again, this is not me saying this, this is the 500 people that are afraid of clowns that Professor Tyson spoke to. Clowns are unpredictable. Clowns make some people laugh, but they often behave in unpredictable and startling ways that normal people never would, such as squirting water from a flower or honking a horn. I love that stuff. See, I love when people behave unpredictably. I love it. People who are scared of spiders say something similar. They're worried that the spider will jump on them unexpectedly. And they also, you know, kind of what Mary Beth was saying, a clown's exaggerated features are disturbing. The big red nose, the egg head, the puffs of neon colored hair. People seem to be scared of beings that look nearly human. But not exactly. In the same way that some people find baby dolls, aliens, or robots disturbing. So imagine, I may have to use AI uh, to create this, but imagine there was an AI uh, art, a piece of art. I'm going to see if I could create this right now. Imagine a, a, an, a piece of, uh, let's see, an alien clown robot. Let's see what they come up with. That would be something that would just freak everybody out, right? I I can't imagine. All right, 800-848-9222, Lisa is in Connecticut. You're not afraid of clowns, are you, Lisa? No, I mean, I got a lot of clown friends in my life. Oh! (laughs) But it's kind of funny. Um, I do have some friends that are really scared of clowns, some girls of mine. And I'm like, what the heck is wrong with you guys? Like, it's just a clown. And I think he hit the nail on the head. It's that poltergeist movie. I think it bugged a lot of people out. And different movies in that killer clowns are out of space. I love that movie. I was always like a horror junkie when I was like, even when I was a kid. My my, my parents would go out for date night. And they'd be like, hey, we're going to Blockbuster. What do you want? I, mean, I, want, I, I want to get Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, yeah. Scared. That's one of my Street favorites. Sugar and stuff. You know what I mean? Back in the day, so I was always like into, um, into scary movies and, and stuff like that. But you know what's really cool? It's called Coolrophobia. Coolrophobia. Yes, that's, that's right. That's what it's called. So it's kind of cool. Coolrophobia. <laughs> the fear of clowns. Uh, I don't know about that being so cool, but it's kind of a funny name. Coolrophobia. <laughs> well, Lisa, it sounds like you're. Laugh, right? uh, no doubt about it. I hope you get lots of candy. Are you are you dressing up today? No, I'm actually working, unfortunately. But um, in the past, I usually dress up as a cop. Oh. That always went down really well. I can imagine. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine you would be a great uh, a great like, mo- motivator for people to follow the law. <laughs> Lisa, thank you. Thank you. All right. A- happy Halloween. Hey, uh, by the way, I'm told that word is pronounced etiology. So thank you to the gentleman that uh, that uh, corrected me on that etiology. So what I did is I just used the image creator powered by Dolly Three to create an image of an alien clown robot. I created four. They all look pretty decent. I could see it being a little scary. I just shared it 
on my Facebook page if you want to take a look at what an alien clown robot would look like. Uh, just go to Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. 800-848-9222. Open line's going to continue with your calls in a moment. Let me tell you what's coming up today. One, It's not really horror, even though there are a handful of episodes that are a little spooky. I am a huge fan of The Twilight Zone, and obviously because this week is the anniversary of Orson Welles' infamous War of the Worlds skit. I was thinking, should we try and do something looking at the War of the Worlds or Orson Welles? And then I got, it just kind of jogged in my mind a thinking on who the other best people that encouraged you to use your imagination using the art forms that they had at their disposal. And I think one of the best at that in the visual realm has been Rod Serling. I absolutely love Rod Serling and his work on The Twilight Zone, his work on uh, Night Gallery, his work in other things like uh, the, the movie Planet of the Apes is legendary. And I just think of what a brilliant man and how robbed society was by him dying at such a young age. And to me, it's a, a cautionary tale into why people should stay away from uh, smoking cigarettes. Because obviously you'd see him smoking at the beginning of all those Twilight Zone episodes. He apparently was really into smoking cigarettes. So he's going to join me in about 10 minutes. Not Rod Serling, but his biographer, Joel Engel, veteran journalist. He's written a couple of books about Rod Serling, including... Last Stop, the biography of Rod Serling. Next hour, what a lot of people find scary is climate change. So I had hoped to uh, host a debate on the issue of climate change between some person who's a climate skeptic and another person who is, you know, more of the in the conventional wisdom category in terms of climate. But I was not able to find someone to debate the climate skeptic. Even I asked the gentleman that had agreed on air to a debate before he was unavailable. So we're going to talk with Steve Gorham. Uh, he is the author of the book Green Breakdown. And what we're going to do is he's going to be willing to take your questions. So if you have a question related to climate, he has no problem with challenging questions. And if you have a question and you want to kind of Hold his feet to the fire. Uh, we'll take your calls on that subject. And then a lot going on in the Middle East, a lot going on in Eastern Europe. We're going to get into some of it with Thomas Graham, who is a diplomat, an author, and a professor who has studied foreign policy more closely than most. So I'm looking forward to all three conversations. And we usually do the mail next hour, but we're going to go through the mail in our fourth hour. So if you have an email message that you'd like read on the air, you can email me, whether it's positive or negative, whatever the case may be, at uh, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Let me say hello to Chris in the Catskills. Hi, Chris. Hey, good morning, Frank. Captain Spaulding, House of a Thousand Corpses, the Rob Zombie movie. That's one clown I'd be afraid of. And then there was the Seinfeld episode with Kramer. 
there was a couple of them where he had a fear of clowns. Right, that's I right, a, with Crazy Joe Devola. I have a phobia of bad talk radio, Mar- Marconi phobia. Well, that's, that's funny. That's funny. That's funny, Chris. I like it. Not bad. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Babylon. Hi, Eddie. Hi. I was, uh, I've been a clown for the Shriners, and they'd send you to the clown college. I didn't really need it uh, because I... <clears throat> You know, I watched Bozo as a kid, and then you watch uh, other famous clowns. And when I got ma- made up, Frank, I would have a, you know, a sadder face, put a cigar, a stogie in my mouth. You know, I'd be the clown that had, well, you know, just kind of like no look. You know, I would fall, I'd trip on something. And a girl I knew, Marianne, she said, oh, no, I can't see you. I go, what do you mean? I'm a funny clown. She said, no, I'm deathly afraid of clowns. And you wonder what trauma they had, whether it was a movie uh, you know, like you, you, were, you were talking about the movies with various uh, evil clowns in them. Maybe that's it. But I grew up in an era of Bozo and Clarabelle. Um, who Clarabelle was one of the weathermen on NBC or something. Um, so, Eddie, why do you think so many people are afraid of clowns? Uh, I didn't know so many people were until I met Marianne. I think it's the uh, the movie industry. Who's Marianne? Yeah. <clears throat> A friend of mine ah. that uh, happened to hear that I was a clown with the Shriners. <laughs> I think the movie industry capitalized on it. Well, that's interesting. On, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting it's that something. you mentioned that, Eddie. Thank you. A lot of the people who responded, and if you want to comment, you can, 800-848-9222. A lot of the people who responded in this survey conducted by Dr. Tyson said that movie clowns are terrifying, and that is a factor in driving their their phobia. Many of those surveyed also said their fears due in part to movies starring scary clowns like uh, Joaquin Phoenix in Joker, Pennywise in, in It. But this fear of clowns, I mean, I guess some of it is born from reality. I mentioned the mass murderer John Wayne Gacy, who killed at least 33 teenage boys and young men, in the Chicago area, he was known to have entertained at ch- as children's parties as Pogo the Clown. And I haven't seen this trailer for the—I haven't seen this Netflix documentary. But there's a trailer for a Netflix documentary about John Wayne Gacy, and he's heard saying on tape that clowns can get away with anything. More recently, there's been a spate of creepy clown sightings in the United Kingdom— And the United States in 2016, it caused schools to actually lock down, which all led Stephen King to tweet, hey, guys, time to cool the clown hysteria. Most of them are good. Cheer up the kiddies. Make people laugh. That's the way that's the way I feel. I just I just wonder what makes one category of entertainer creepy or one category of entertainer anything. Right. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's uh, 800-848-9222. We'll chat with Joel Angle about Rod Serling straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Singing Twilight Zone. Well, uh, the Twilight Zone is, without a doubt, one of the most impactful five seasons of television in history. And if you compare that show to so many other shows that were on at the same time, that tried to do the same thing that it did, so many shows that came after it for the ensuing 70 or so years that tried to do the same thing, meaning an anthology series that uh, focused on a different story each week where maybe there was a uh, something strange going on, something out of the ordinary, always with a bizarre twist at the end. Many of them are very good. I'm a fan of many of them. None of them are as good as The Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone. Now, sometimes you see films or television shows And I don't know that audiences in the current era can necessarily appreciate how revolutionary those shows were at the time because they've influenced everything that came after it. The Sopranos is a good example. So many of the dramas that have been made over the last 20 years 
emulate The Sopranos. So now, if someone who's used to watching television today watches The Sopranos, you almost kind of react, oh, well, okay, well, it's interesting, but I don't know. I've seen a lot of shows do that before. The same cannot be said of The Twilight Zone. The incredible writing on that show, the incredible acting on that show with people like um, Buster Keaton, William Shatner, Dennis Hopper, and uh, Robert Redford, countless others. It really is timeless. And I think you could hold an episode of The Twilight Zone from 1960 up to anything on television today, and I think The Twilight Zone comes out ahead. And I know a lot of people, especially on Halloween, enjoy the tradition of watching an old black-and-white TV series that might be a little spooky, a little interesting, might, might make interesting points about contemporary society in a fun way. If The Twilight Zone is on your list today, one of the things I think you're going to be struck by is how integral Rod Serling not only is writing, but his opening and closing narrations are into kind of setting the stage for that particular story. What's also interesting is how prophetic so many of his monologues in those episodes from 60 years ago have turned out to be. Like this ep- this uh, monologue from The Obsolete Man. You walk into this room at your own risk because it leads to the future. Not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. The Chancellor, the late Chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete. But so is the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind. Unfortunately, though, since Rod Serling has now been gone for about 50 years... We don't have the opportunity to see him create any new work. And a lot of us would love to know more about him. Someone that has contributed a great deal to the study of Sterlingology has been Joel Engel, a veteran journalist and author of many books, including Last Stop, the biography of Rod Serling. Joel, thanks for coming on the radio with me. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. That uh, absolute man uh, narration gave me the chills. Uh, same here. Same here. Even though I knew exactly what was going to happen and what he what he says, you listen to what he's saying and you compare it to what's going on today, and there are just so many uh, parallels. Now, Joel, you have uh, more than one book on Rod Serling, right? You've got a couple. No, no, I, I have one. The uh, the, the title of of the edition that's out now it's called last stop the twilight zone which is a conscious echo of his next stop the twilight zone i originally published his biography in 1989 and i wanted to call it that 
but I made the mistake of uh, going down to CBS and meeting with a lawyer and asking him whether Twilight Zone at that time was considered in the public domain, the, the words. And he said, yeah. So <laughs> I changed the title to um, Rod Serling, The Dreams and Nightmares of Life gotcha. in the Twilight Zone. Gotcha. So if it's, people... it's the same book with uh, uh, minor edits. Gotcha. So if they see uh, two books by you about Rod Serling on Amazon or something, it's essentially it's materially the same book. It is exactly the same book with a couple words different. Got it. Hey, so what sparked your interest in uh, writing about Rod Serling? I know you've written about a lot of different subjects before, a lot of interesting stuff. Why Rod Serling? Well, it was uh, I, it was 1987, and I was home from work, um, sick. And in those days, in pretty much every big city and small city, the Twilight Zone was a strip show. You could at midnight and noon you could watch back to back two episodes. So I saw an episode that I had seen twenty five times before. It might even I don't remember what it was. It might even have been Obsolete Man. And I thought ah, Rod Serling, he must be really uh, he must be must have been a really interesting man. I'm gonna so as soon as I was well, I went to a bookstore. Uh, long story short, I couldn't find a book because one didn't exist. Uh, then I went to, I live in Los Angeles. I went to UCLA, the special collections department. And it turned out that he had donated or his family had donated three or four or five boxes of memos and things like that. And I sat there and I read them for four hours one day. And I thought, oh, this is, this guy is fascinating. This would make a great biography someday for someone. And I went, wait a second. This would make a great biography for you. So I spent the next two years uh, researching and writing it. Well, it's interesting, you know, the fact that you couldn't find any other biographies. I thought to myself when I first conceived of doing this segment, I said, let me find the best Rod Serling biographers that I can. And maybe we can even do a panel of all the Rod Serling biographers. You were the only real biography of Rod Serling that I could find. So uh, thank goodness you added to the uh, to the uh, the collective knowledge of Rod Serling. Uh, let us uh, start with the basics. What can you tell us about Rod's early life, where he grew up, what kind of family he came from? What was young Rod Serling long before the Twilight Zone like? Uh, he grew up um, upstate from you in Binghamton. Uh, he had on the surface what was a pretty idyllic childhood. Um, he was uh, a, a gifted kid in a lot of ways. Um, his father owned, his father was a, a frustrated engineer, but who owned a meat market. Uh, his six years older brother was uh, already a pretty good writer and became professionally a very good writer, Robert Serling. He was probably most famous for uh, The President's Plane is Missing. Mm. Um, anyway, but he was he was a Jewish kid in a town that didn't have that many Jews and had a, a subtext or a, a, an undercurrent of anti-Semitism in it. For instance, he could there were clubs he couldn't join. There was a fraternity he couldn't get into, and all of that. Um, and so that stayed with him, and it didn't really express itself. He he always had a need to uh, try to prove himself. Um, and people loved him. People really liked him. He was he was ingratiating, and he was charming, and he was smart, and he was verbal. 
Um, but until he got into World War II, he was a, a paratrooper and, and had an astounding experience in um, um, uh, uh, in the Philippines. Uh, there was a very long period when his his platoon couldn't get resupplied, so they were they they had to drink rainwater out of their ponchos and they, the the little planes, the uh, the L fives that were supposed to drop down. Uh, crates of of food and supplies to them couldn't they, they weren't able to do it and finally after weeks they were able to do it and a crate that was bringing them sustenance one of them landed on the head of his best friend Mel Levy killed him wow and, and that what I, th- I, I th- when that happened and and then then Rod was in some some severe action after that. But that moment of irony, irony being the coin of the realm in the Twilight Zone, I think that's when that was born. And all of those things in Rod's life, all of them, the the stuff that he had um, uh, tried to ignore, the, the stuff of not, but not belonging and all of that and being shorter than everybody else, all of that, I think, coalesced after that uh, and after the war, and I think that's when, in in earnest, the Twilight Zone was born. He tried to sell it as a radio uh, anthology series to a guy named Walter Schwimmer, who was a radio syndicator, and I talked to this guy Schwimmer, and he said, I have two claims to fame in my life. One is, I got this proposal from this young aspiring writer named Rod Serling for something called the Twilight Zone. I told him, nah, it'll never work. <laughs> and the other is, I got, I kept getting bothered by this uh, young comedian who wanted me to give him a show. And I thought, nah, this guy's got nothing. And his name was Danny Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> the, the mush of the entertainment world. Hey, uh, so it's no wonder, given his uh, service in the military and the very jarring experiences that you described, that a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes deal extensively with uh, themes like uh, the w- wars and uh, and the military and all sorts of, all sorts of that stuff. Um, we're talking with Joel Engel. You could check out his book, Last Stop, the biography of Rod Serling. It's available on Amazon and uh, most places that you can get your books. Uh, what what was his career before the Twilight Zone after leaving the military? Did he do anything in between his military service and being uh, the writer of the Twilight Zone? He, uh, after the, the service he got out, he went to Antioch in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio, and he got a degree, and he majored in radio and broadcasting and phys ed. And then he got a job uh, in Cincinnati at radio station WLW, writing all of the kind of cornpone stuff that radio used to just eat up in those days. He used to tell people in the during the war, do you know how many words uh, are uttered every day on the radio, millions of them. I'm going to write some of those words. So he aspired to be uh, in in radio. But at the same time, around 1950, TV was happening in earnest. And he would sit down, at, he would come home from his job writing all this cornpone stuff. Um, and he would come home to his young wife, Carol, and who was uh, got pregnant very early, like by 1951, she was pregnant. And 
and he would crank out all of these scripts, and none of them were working. Finally, he hits. He sells one, and he sells another, then he sells another. And then in 1955, not thinking that he's really going to have a great career, he wrote something for craft theater, craft TV theater called Patterns, which was such a gigantic success that to this day, well, they don't do live TV anymore, but it was the only live TV that they ever did again live. They a, a month later they did it, they did it again. The New York Times reviewer said it was the high water mark in television so far. He won an Emmy for it. He was offered the sky by publishers, by uh, by everybody, by TV, by Holly, by Hollywood itself. And then the following year, he wrote uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight, which is the first original 90-minute uh, script ever produced for TV. And he won an Emmy for, on the new TV series uh, called Playhouse 90. And he won an Emmy for that. And he won an Emmy the following year for another Playhouse 90, which was an adaptation of Ernest Lehman's The Comedians. Um, so he had amazing success. He was by far the most famous writer in television before he got to the twilight wow okay so that was patterns that was sort of the game changer for him it was his life that was january 12 1955 and to the end of his days 20 years and six months later his life was never the same after that wow now um so tell me you mentioned that he tried to pitch the twilight zone as a radio anthology series obviously he had a lot of juice uh, given his stature winning those emmys doing requiem for a heavyweight doing patterns tell me how the twilight zone became a television show and how did he become the one showrunner, the one major writer of a television series, to get also featured as the host of that television series? Okay, so he he had this idea for something he called the time element. He had, ever since the war, he'd had this recurring uh, dream and nightmare that he could go back in time and and stop things from happening. Now, remember, he fought in in the South Pacific, and one of the things that he thought about would make a good story was making it so that um, Pearl, the 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 brass at Pearl Harbor was worn. So he came up with a sixty minute script, and uh, that a guy, a producer named Bert Granite, bought and put on as. Uh, Desilu Playhouse, and it was such an it was such a gigantic big hit. Again, the, it got more cards and letters than anything CBS had ever done to that point. And these, this was a show that was taking Lucy and Desi's place uh, uh, one week a month. Um, so he thought that he had some juice with this, but this, the the um, the network would not commit to sixty minutes for something like that, for something speculative, for something that you couldn't tie up in a bow. That was the term that they used. Because they, the, they didn't think the audience was yet sophisticated enough to watch something that didn't have a period and exclamation point at the end. So he came up with the... And, and now CBS loved it. He, he was exclusive to CBS. They were paying him a lot of money because he was the writer in television at that time. So he came up with another idea, and that was uh, a 30-minute, 
which he really didn't want to do, but it was a 30-minute script called The Happy Place, and it was basically about euthanasia. You get to age 60, and they send you in an elevator to the happy place, ergo you're dead. And so the, the, um, the network would not commit to that because they thought, we can't sell a series. In those days, you went... If you had a series, you shot a pilot, and then the network took it to uh, advertisers like Liggett Myers and and, uh, uh, Kimberly Clark, and those were the the advertisers who signed on. Now, remember, for a a 30-minute show then, it was 25 minutes of show and five minutes of commercial, and those five minutes were taken up by two different uh, sponsors. So... Uh, they couldn't, they they wouldn't commit to that. But they told him, write us another pilot. So he did. He wrote another pilot called "Where Is Everybody?" about a um, a man who everywhere he goes, he sees signs of someone just having been there, and uh, he never finds anybody. It turns out, very timely, he was an astronaut going through isolation mm. training. Um, so that became the Twilight Zone pilot, and that's what sold the series. Um, and so the the series was sold on the condition. Now, in those days, they were buying 39 episodes, 39 episodes, on the condition that he would write 80% of them. <laughs> so that's how he became. So along the way, he found Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont, and, and a couple of other writers who would be able to contribute, but he really only, at the beginning especially, uh, trusted himself to be able to come up with scripts that were good enough. And he worked his keister off doing that. What was the story with season four of The Twilight Zone? Obviously, it's very different than the other seasons. It's uh, an hour long. It looks like it's shot differently. What's the story with that season? Well, uh, a season or two before, they did six episodes in in videotape. And they look, visually, they look different. But that was because um, they were trying to save a bit of money. The, the, The budgets weren't. Anywhere, I, they're not—they're not even an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude near what the budgets are for uh, film series today. But in the, in the fourth season, they decided to expand it to an hour. Um, so the funny thing about that is, Rod used to get asked, "How do you write so often?" He said, "Well, I don't have to come up with a, a third act. The third act." is and that's the way it is in the twilight zone <laughs> so most of the uh fourth seasons uh, really look like they're just they're dragged out except for one one extraordinary thing and i'll sit let me let me just preface this by saying the more you know about rod serling the more you appreciate each of the twilight zone because very much i would say 98.8 percent of what's of everything that Rod ever wrote was in some way autobiographical, whether psychological or actually biographical. In the fourth season, he felt like he was being shunted aside by the, not appreciated by the network. So the one that stands out and has become, since I started learning about him, my favorite episode, it's called On Thursday We Leave for Home. It's about this, uh, about, about a, a bunch of people. James Whitmore is the captain. They I remember it. this. I love it. 
Yeah, it's a wonderful episode. And they they left Earth many, many, many years before um, because they couldn't take the, 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 the constant on the verge of war and all of that and racism and all of the things that, that Rod hated. And so they are there. And uh, one day, they've been there for a generation. They've, people have they've gotten married. They've had children. The children have had children. And Whitmore is still the glue that keeps them all together. And one day, another spaceship comes with the captain and says, well, we're taking you all back to Earth. It's utopia now. Everything is fine. And everybody gets excited to go back to Earth. And now he knows he's not important to them anymore. He's not the big cheese. And everybody gets on the ship to leave but him. He stays behind by himself. And that was very much psychologically mm. what was going on in, in Rod's head and heart and belly at the time. Joe, my only regret in having you on today is that uh, I didn't try to book you for a full hour. Uh, maybe we can uh, do a part two in a week or two and continue the conversation because there's a lot of other things that I'd love to ask you about uh, Rob, Rod Serling. And you've led a pretty interesting life your, yourself and written about uh, a lot of other interesting things I'd love to get get into with you. Can we uh, chat again in a week or two? Anytime, Frank. Thank you, Joel. Joel Angle, you want to comment on any portion of our conversation? You can do so. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. to that Halloween party, there was a full moon, and I was expecting to see more werewolves. Uh, I didn't see many, though. But uh, today is Halloween. We, I took Carmine to the party store, and we were looking through costumes, and we found a Spider-Man costume for him, and he really does like Spider-Man, but I am a member of SAG-AFTRA, and SAG-AFTRA, I'm not joking about this. SAG-AFTRA did send guidance out to its members to not wear any costumes for characters that are from shows that are on strike. So there were very few costumes left that fit him. 
and he he does like Spider-Man. So I said, should we get this costume or am I doing not the right thing by SAG-AFTRA and not following their guidance on the costume? And ultimately, I came up with the, uh, my, the way to rationalize it to myself was the fact that I'm not on strike, meaning the radio performers are not on strike, just the actors, I felt it was okay for me to have uh, this costume for my son. So he, he tried it out today. Looks great. He seems to really enjoy it. He's not crazy about the mask, though, but we're going to go trick-or-treating this afternoon. Hopefully he'll get some candy. Hey, you know what a lot of people find scary? Electric vehicles. We'll get into it in a moment. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It is Halloween, and for a lot of people, the thing that's scary is climate change. Because you hear climate change being pointed to as the cause of everything from more devastating hurricanes to the cause of forest fires which uh, with uh, smoke that goes from Canada to New York City. Even, and I'm not joking when I say this, this is not an exaggeration, even terrorism has been blamed on climate change. And if you look at any given day in the news cycle, there's not one, not two, not 20, not 100, but hundreds of new stories every day about climate change, mentioning climate change in some form or another. Washington Post yesterday to a growing number of scientists. Climate change is an emergency. New York Times shipping contributes heavily to climate change. Uh, change are green ships the solution. Bloomberg.com. This is all within the last 24 hours. Climate change, global green investment splurge needs new guardrails. The intercept when idiot savants do climate economics. CNBC. Shipping industry could lose $10 billion a year battling climate change by 2050. AP, Navajo sheep herding at risk from climate change. Some young people push to maintain the tradition. I could go on and on. BBC, USA Today, The Guardian, all focused on a totally different story. The one constant is a reference to climate change. So what's it all about, Alfie? I have noticed in the talk radio sphere, especially, but more broadly in other places, there are a lot of folks that either don't believe in global warming or climate change, and there are a lot of folks that may believe in it, but they think it's not necessarily caused by man. And there are some folks that think, okay, even if it is caused by man, even if the climate is getting warmer, 
there's not a whole lot we could do about it, and it doesn't make sense to totally rework our entire economy in order to make that, you know, in order to play to what the green people are saying needs to be done. So what I had thought would be interesting and thought-provoking and fun is to have two great thinkers on different sides of this issue come together and have a conversation about climate change and the solutions that different people are proposing to tackle this. And I was able to get a lot of people that were uh, would agree to be on the climate skeptic portion of it. Unfortunately, I was not able to get somebody, even though there's a lot of people that subscribe to this, to take the other side of the debate. And different people had different reasons. Not available, that time is not convenient, I'm asleep, or which I get. Or, and this is my least favorite one, whatever the issue, is I'm not going to debate facts. I'm not going to debate science. That was my favorite when people would always say that's why they're not going to debate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on vaccines. Uh, I, I mean, I, to me, it's laughable. You want to debate the law of gravity with me? Fine. I'll debate the law of gravity with you, even though I'm not a physicist. Now, um, so what I thought what, what would be done with this debate is I don't expect everybody to change their position, whatever it is, overnight. But what my hope was that people might hear the other side have some questions about what the other side is thinking, whatever the other side is based on your perspective, and then understand why people believe differently than them. Not expecting them to change their own view, just kind of understand why people are thinking differently. So what I'd like to do is we have one great guest who I'm going to introduce to you in a moment. I would like to invite you to call in with a question. Uh, And he is on the climate skeptic portion of the ledger, I believe. I'm going to let him speak for himself in a moment. But if you have a question and you are someone that believes that climate change is real, that global warming, the the earth is getting hotter and that man-made greenhouse gas emissions are the reason or a key driver as to why, then I'd like for you to call in at 800-848-9222 and challenge the expert we have retained at this moment. I am very, very pleased to welcome Steve Gorham. He is a speaker and an independent columnist and an author who's written several books on this subject. His latest book is Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. Steve, thanks so much for staying up late and joining me on the radio. Good morning, Frank. Happy Halloween. And uh, we're going to talk about some... That was a great introduction, by the way, that you just made. Uh, We're going to talk about some scary things, like uh, if we all drive electric cars, we're not going to be able to stop the oceans from rising. Or if we all change our light bulbs, how that isn't going to help us save polar bears. Or if we build wind turbines everywhere, we're not going to make the hurricanes less severe or less frequent. Wonderful. Really radical stuff. I want, I want to ask you about all this. All right, so <laughs> you, your book is Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. What is the coming renewable energy failure? Let's, let's begin with that. So the wealthy portion of the world, about one-seventh of the population, that's the United States, Europe, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and, and a few other nations, are uh, headed toward what they call uh, net zero uh, carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. 
and they're on a quest basically to transform our energy system away from coal, natural gas, uh, and um, uh, I'm drawing a blank here, and oil, of course, <laughs> and switch to uh, wind and solar. And that's what they want to do, and they want to remove the emissions from from everything we do, our heating, our uh, power plants, our transportation, our heavy industry. But this this net zero quest is is beyond reach out. It's more like a wish and a prayer. It is just not going to happen. And so the system is going to break down. Uh, This whole idea we can get to net zero by 2050 is just not going to happen. And that's what the book is about. It's about a complete discussion of all facets of of uh, uh, utilities, home appliances, electric vehicles, heavy industry, heavy transportation, uh, airlines and shipping, uh, the recent uh, energy crisis in Europe, and how we're we're not going to get to where people think we're going to get get to. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, well, so let's begin with electric vehicles, since that's the first one that you mentioned, and that's very sure. trendy. Uh, obviously, I think the top dog in terms of electric vehicles is Tesla, but it seems like all the auto manufacturers, or at least all the big audio manufacturers, are coming out with their version of an electric vehicle, even though that's not necessarily what the consumers seem to want, but it seems like they're being kind of nudged in that direction by regulators and others. What's the matter with electric vehicles, Steve? If someone doesn't want to wait at the uh, gas pump, they, they don't want to fill up uh, when gas hits uh, four fifty a gallon again, why shouldn't they get an electric vehicle? Well, there are many, many issues that are are emerging. Let me first say that uh, electric vehicles are penetrating world markets. Uh, Last year, they were about 13% of the world's small vehicles, uh, new light vehicles uh, that were sold, and they're growing fairly fast. In the United States, they're about uh, a little under 7%. And out of 1.5 billion light vehicles on the road at the end of last year, there are about 27 million EVs, about about 2%. Um. they're great if you can, uh, you know, the advantages are if you can charge at home, it can be very low cost. And if you drive short distances to work, uh, it can be very convenient. But there are many, many problems with EVs. Um, uh, first, uh, vehicles have, you have to have put this electric battery in and vehicles become very heavy. Uh, the average electric vehicle uh, for, versus its gasoline counterpart is about 50% heavier and, wow, if you look at those uh, pickup trucks, for example, they're a big case. Uh, the Ford F-150 gasoline 2023 weighs 4,700 pounds, but uh, the Ford F-150 Lightning EV weighs 6,500 pounds. And then you go all the way up to the 2024 Chevy Silverado EV, 8,500 pounds. It's a, it's a four-ton pickup truck. Wow. <laughs> so that's kind of an issue. Uh, price is another big issue. Uh, the price disadvantage between, for example, a 2022 Toyota Corolla and a 2022 Chevy uh, Bolt was about 50, 50% more for the EV. Uh, now, that price disadvantage has narrowed in the last year because there's a price war going on right now. Tesla has been lowering prices, and so uh, EV prices are coming down. But big problem there is, uh, and we can discuss in a minute, that's because the market is kind of hitting a speed bump. Uh, charging is very, very difficult uh, unless you've got a garage. Uh, but but there are uh, charging stations. It's very hard to travel. It takes a long time to charge. Uh, half hour on a high speed charger. 
uh, much longer on, on a low-speed charger. Uh, there's a lot of other things popping up, too. Insurance in England right now, uh, there are a lot of stories about uh, insurance policies that are being canceled for EVs, and then people call around and it takes them 10 calls to get insured, and it costs them 5,000 pounds for a year. And, and that's like, because of the weight, that's because of the battery, that's because of the possibility of a fire hazard, or is it due to fire, multiple yeah, factors? There's some damage issues, too. You know, if you, if you damage the battery in the, slightest, in the slightest way, then it becomes a fire risk. And, and so if there's a little bit of damage and the battery is damaged, you don't really know what to do with them. Then, then you're talking about a $5,000 to $20,000 cost replacement for the battery. It can be very, very large. So what is the role, the reason that governments have been pushing this in terms of, of tax incentives? Is, there, is it really about wanting to have less greenhouse gas emissions or is there some sort of more insidious motive in your view? No, I really think I think people are true believers. It really is driven by what I'll call climatism, uh, which is is an ideology. It's and I use that term in my and the title of my first two books. Uh, it's an ideology that's the fear of man-made global warming, and so all the governments have adopted the idea that we want to get rid of our gasoline vehicles, replace them with electric vehicles. And uh, they are both putting incentives in. You can get seventy five hundred dollars. Uh, as a as a price reduction, a, a tax credit uh, for buying an EV, and then we have states that are actually banning electric vehicles: uh, California, Oregon, Washington. I think the state of New York banning now is put- non non electric vehicles. They're banning conju- combustion uh, engines. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah, they're banning gasoline engines by mistake, and they want to do that by 2035 or so. Uh, so, so there's both there's both uh, dollar incentives, and then there are uh, some bans that are going in. But there are just many, many problems that that are emerging. Another one is is uh, cold weather effects. I speak to businesses at conferences, and I met a guy there. His wife had a Tesla. They lived in Cleveland, and two years ago, it down to, it got down to 10 degrees Fahrenheit in Cleveland. They didn't have a heated garage, and literally, their EV would not charge. It just wouldn't charge. You could leave it on there for days. Uh, and they called up Tesla, and Tesla says, sorry, that's the, kind of the way it is. You need a heated garage. <laughs> and so, so there are all these problems that are emerging with these things. And so we've had, we've had market penetration, and we have a lot of early adopters uh, who like the, uh, you know, the real cool Teslas, those sorts of things. But now you're getting to the general population, and a lot of people say, you know, I drive to my second home or I drive a long way to work, or I don't have a heated garage, or I have an apartment I can't even charge. I'd have to put wires over the sidewalk. There are just many, many issues. And so right now we see faltering EV demand. EV inventories are up over 300% from last year on dealer lots. There's a very poor demand for EV pickup trucks. Uh, Ford Motor is losing over $60,000 on each EV sold, and they're projecting a loss of $4.5 billion this year. So Ford and GM and other firms um, are delaying new EV models to cut costs. And so we got this early adopter phase that's over, and the EVs are starting to pile up. Uh, again, they are going to penetrate world markets. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not against electric vehicles. I think if you know, the market ought to decide. 
and it's great if you want one. The thing is, though, that if we think we're going to force everybody to buy one to to make the hurricanes less severe, that's the thing that that just doesn't make any sense. Now, the um, the just and again, pardon my ignorance on this. And we're talking with Steve Gorham. His uh, his book is Green Breakdown: The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. Putting aside the the merits of uh, what you referred to as climatism. Let's say you do buy into uh, that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. These vehicles, the electric vehicles, still are being powered by electricity. Electricity is not exactly, you know, it's it it comes from somewhere, right? I mean, don't we need to create that electricity somewhere? And what is the, uh, for lack of a better uh, descriptor the carbon footprint for the electricity that's created to power these cars also what's the story with how those batteries are created many uh, in countries that aren't exactly known for having a high regard for environmental standards yep. well you've raised uh, two really good points the question is are you even saving greenhouse gas emissions the guy who wrote the ford for my book uh, mark mills uh, with the Manhattan Institute. He's, I think he's from the Manhattan Institute. He's an energy expert. And he's written a, a recent paper saying, we don't really know what the greenhouse gas emission reduction will be. First off, when, when an EV is manufactured, you release a lot more greenhouse gases to produce the battery than a gasoline car. And so it takes maybe 80 or 100,000 or more miles for, for your EV to break even uh, and get and, and have less uh, carbon dioxide emissions than a gasoline vehicle, and then it depends on the the electrical power. If you're in the Midwest and and we have a lot, we get a lot of electricity from coal and natural gas. You, you may not break even for a long, long time. But the second thing you mention is that there's a real question whether EVs are even environmentally friendly, because uh, you have to have these batteries. And batteries first require special metals, according to the International Energy Agency. Each EV requires six times as much special metals as a gasoline car. And these special metals are graphite and copper, nickel, manganese, cobalt, and lithium. And where are these mined? Well, they're mostly mined in developing nations, uh, some in Australia, some in China. So for an example, cobalt, which goes into your, your battery in your EV, uh, the biggest producer of cobalt ore in the world is the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's well known that the mining there, much of the mining is done by uh, child labor and by forced labor. They produce about 30 or 35 percent of the world's cobalt ore. So once they get the ore, then they ship it to China. China refines most of the special metals in the world. And China is not real good uh, environmentally either. There's an there's a image of a rare earth lake, it's called, where as far as you can see, for square miles and square miles around, the land has been destroyed by iron tailing or or metal tailings. And so then they refine the cobalt and other metals. They put it into a battery and they ship it to the United States so that uh, people can drive their Teslas. And and they don't see all this issue of of the social issues in, in developing nations and the environmental issues in China and other places so there are really some big issues, and by the way, there's also the political issues too. But we are the leading producer of 
of uh, natural gas and oil in, in the world. We want to get rid of all that and become dependent on China for all these special metals for EVs. <laughs> Uh, well, not, not a real good policy no, I mean, uh, from a political uh, point of view. One of the things that proponents of electric vehicles say is that irrespective of the point that you just made of the reliance on China for metals, that reducing the amount of oil that's being consumed, the amount of gasoline that's being used in our fuel – is a positive for the environment. They say that uh, it's going to ultimately, in the long run, save consumers money on fuel and that maybe we will get a bit closer to energy independence by being less reliant on oil. And you couple that with the benefits for the planet and that they say that spells massive wins for our country. You don't buy that. Well, not really. We are we are still the biggest exporter of petroleum in the world. We're the biggest producer of petroleum. We're the biggest producer of natural gas. Um, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, uh, press that says uh, the Biden administration uh, made us dependent again. That's not really the case. If you look at the actual import and export numbers, there was a very very small change. And much of that in, in 2019, 2020, 2021 was because of low world oil prices. But we are now producing record amounts of petroleum. Uh, by the way, we kept the lights on in Europe last year, uh, was shipping liquefied natural gas. The United States and Qatar kept blackouts from occurring in Europe because we ramped up our, our outputs in, in quite a big way. So uh, they are still, I mean, if you look at the energy output from oil and natural gas and coal in some cases, uh, that is the, it's still the lowest cost uh, uh, equipment. By the way, another one is is uh, propane. We're the biggest exporter of propane in the world, and more than half of our propane gas is now going to Asia. And there are people in Asia that that are still cooking in their in their homes inside with with wood and dung and charcoal, and they get lung diseases, and they, they die early deaths. In India, for example, uh, the prime minister there, who, whose name is escaping, Modi, uh, has set up hundreds of propane distribution centers, and he's providing co- propane to people now. He's been doing that for about seven, eight years, to, to like 50 million families so that they cook indoors. They can, And when you use propane for cooking instead of um, uh, biomass or charcoal, you reduce the particulates in your home by a factor of a thousand. Wow. I mean, it is a big, big deal. So there are many, many advantages to hydrocarbon. Uh, the thing that we, we have to, you know, we've gotten to, to call carbon dioxide a pollutant. That is what's really goofy. What we need to do is reduce other particulate par, uh, uh, pollution and those sorts of things. And we've done a great job of doing that. Uh, so, so, you know, those arguments are, I think, difficult to make. Okay, um, you, you can stick around a few uh, a little while longer. You don't mind, yes, sir. All right, great. Well, so uh, Steve Gorham is here. He's the author of the book Green Breakdown: The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. If you would like to challenge any of what he's saying on electric vehicles or on climate change in general, we are going to put you to the front of the line, the front of the queue. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you have a pointed question or an intelligent response to anything that uh, that Steve has said, uh, essentially that 
it's not a climate emergency and that uh, people should – that's not the emergency that's been described by some and that there's not a whole lot of benefit to the planet and to the country for making this transition to a green economy. 800-848-9222 if you want to challenge him on any of those points, put you right through. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Incidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget just as soon as I... Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. <laughs> It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. My guest is Steve Gorham. And uh, he agreed to take on all comers when it comes to the issue of climate change. And uh, if you want to school him and, by extension, the audience, and explain why there's an urgency to the climate crisis... Then we will put you right through front of the line, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. He's an independent columnist, uh, a speaker whose book is one of his latest books. He's written several is Green Breakdown, the coming renewable energy failure. Steve, I want to, you, we've uh, covered a great deal when it comes to electric vehicles. I want to pick your brain on wind, solar and some other energy aspects in the future, but I think any transition to renewable energy is all predicated on the fact that reliance upon fossil fuels like oil and gas and coal are bad for the planet and are causing the planet to become hotter. Give me your overall theory, Uh, understanding that switching to an electric vehicle is not going to stop the oceans from rising. Do do you acknowledge that the Earth is itself getting warmer? And if you do, what do you view as the cause for that? Right. So, uh, yes, the Earth is getting warmer. Uh, we've had a gentle warming for about the last three or four hundred years. Uh, you know, there there was an article, but but it's really blown out of proportion. There was an article in in July that went all over the press. A scientist has estimated that July was the hottest month in 120,000 years. Maybe you saw that. I, I did. I thought that was absurd. I, I mean, it was an, uh, but... it was an NPR, and it was uh, in on CNN, uh, USA Today, and and it wasn't challenged, and it's it's flat out crazy. I mean, if if you uh, if you look at any kind of geological stuff, um, 
It's clear that it was warmer a thousand years ago. For example, the Vikings settled southwest Greenland, and where they settled, there were trees a thousand years ago. And today on that site, there are nothing but scrub grasses. 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 8,000 years ago, we have had uh, many multi-century long periods in the last 10,000 years when it was warmer than today. Today's temperatures are not abnormally warm. We've had one degree Celsius of warming in 140 years, and that basically is not contested. That's straight out of uh, NOAA and NASA and the Climate Research Unit in England. That's two degrees Fahrenheit in 140 years, very, very small. Uh, let me give you another quick example on that. There's a glacier in Switzerland called the Rhone Glacier, which is which is a mountain-to-mountain, big, wide valley glacier. The Rhone River flows out of it into France and down to the Mediterranean. Well, that glacier has been receding for uh, uh, more than a century now. But every time the glacier pulls back, what do they find? They find things like horse bridles, and they find wagon wheels, and they find 4,000-year-old wood under it. And and uh, one uh, one uh, scientist, Dr. Christian Schluter, estimated that that valley where the glacier is today had been ice-free for most of the last 10,000 years. There was no ice in that valley, and that is just one of many many examples. So we are in a, we are in a little bit of a warming, but it's very clear that there were many many times when we had warming in the past. So and, and do you find that the the things that are being attributed to that warming uh, are not necessarily what uh, they're not as hazardous to public health and the public environment as climate folks are uh, being led are le- are leading folks to believe. Uh, yeah, rising so- oceans, worsening of storms, worsening of forest fires, and things of that nature. Do you not believe that those are that bad? Well, let me, let me, give me about three or four minutes on climate science first, if you would. So the climate science is based on the greenhouse effect. Sunlight, which isn't reflected by, by clouds, is absorbed by the surface of the Earth. And then the Earth, like any warm body, gives off lower energy infrared radiation, which is invisible. We can't see that. And that, would, that cools the Earth on the way out to the atmosphere. But a lot of that is captured by greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, which then vibrate, and that does tend to warm the surface of the Earth. But the first thing you learn when you look at the greenhouse effect is that the most important greenhouse gas isn't carbon dioxide, it isn't methane, it's water vapor. Some are, the, the greenhouse effect is overwhelmingly a natural effect. Somewhere between 70 and 90% of Earth's greenhouse effect is due to water vapor and clouds. And then you say, okay, let's say 75% is due to water vapor. The last quarter of Earth's greenhouse effect is due to mostly carbon dioxide and some methane. But then you have to say, well, how much of that is due to our industry? Because we also have the Earth that has 50 times as much carbon dioxide dissolved in the oceans, and the oceans are always emitting carbon dioxide and absorbing it. When plants die, carbon dioxide is released, and when they grow, they absorb carbon dioxide It turns out that every day nature puts 20 times as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as all of Earth's industries. So when you roll together the effects of water vapor being the dominant greenhouse gas and all of these CO2 emissions by Earth's uh, nature, you find that our industry is responsible for only one or two parts per hundred of Earth's greenhouse effect. It's very, very small, one or two percent. 
And so the evidence shows that Earth's greenhouse effect and, and any warming that's occurring from it is dominated by nature, not our emissions. Uh, Steve, and you never hear any of that in the press. Steve, uh, by the way, uh, a lot of folks have been calling in, but so far okay. every single person that has called has called in to say they are agreeing with you. So I no. would love to get some <laughs> folks on uh, the other side to challenge you So uh, because we have an audience that is, as they'll tell you any day of the week, that is far smarter than I am, so I'd love to get some of them to call in. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. All right, um, let's talk about wind. You know, I had uh, the sure. opportunity to have a fair amount of conversations with, with Donald Trump prior to him becoming president, and one of my favorite things to talk with him about was Atlantic City, because I'm a big Atlantic City guy, and he obviously had quite a history in Atlantic City. And whenever the subject of Atlantic City would come up in our conversations, the first thing that he would talk about is how much those windmills that are there just drive him crazy. And he would go on to talk about all the birds that are killed by the windmills and how they don't necessarily produce the kind of energy that uh, the proponents of windmills promised that they would. Where do you come down on the issue of wind power, putting aside the whether we should strive to reduce our carbon footprint or not. Where are you on wind if, let's say, we agree that it's a good thing to have uh, fewer people reliant upon gas, oil, coal, and the like? Where does wind energy play into your view? So wind and solar have three big disadvantages. Okay, the first one is the land area required for wind and solar. And I like to raise a question when I present to groups. I say, so if I have one energy source that produces that uses one unit of land to produce one unit of electricity and then i have another energy source that uses a hundred units of land to produce one unit of electricity which is more environmentally friendly (laughs) seems obvious does it not right a guy by the name of vaclav smil has written a book on this subject and he analyzed all the sources of electricity and their footprint on including mines and pipelines and waste pits and everything and and basically, if you set nuclear as your standard and you say, okay, this nuclear produces one unit of electricity for one unit of land, then natural gas is about 0.8 units of land for that one unit and coal about 1.4 for that one unit. But when you look at the renewables, solar requires 100 units of land to produce that one unit of electricity. Wind requires between uh, 35 and 800 units of land to produce that one unit of electricity, depending on if you're just counting the the roads and the concrete pads for the towers or whether you count the whole area. And biofuels is the worst. It requires 1,500 units of land to produce one unit of electricity. So land is the first big problem. Uh, the, the second one is the cost. And you see a lot of articles saying wind and solar are cheaper, but usually, usually these are talking about marginal costs and not the total cost of producing electricity. So if you look at Europe, and, and I often, I've been plotting a chart for six or seven years that has, plots the, the wind and solar capacity of a country on one axis and the electricity price on another axis. And you would expect, hey, the countries with the most wind and solar would have the lowest electricity prices, right, if wind and solar were the cheapest. But the curve is exactly the opposite. The nations that put in the most wind and solar have the highest prices. And Denmark and Germany are the glaring examples. 
their electricity prices are three times the price of the United States. And you can also do something in the U.S. Um, if you look at the top 12 wind states, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Iowa, Kansas, Illinois, Colorado, etc., you find that eight of the 12 have faster rising electricity prices than the national average. And that's because you have to build transmission in remote areas, and they also uh, you have to deal with intermittency. And intermittency is the third big problem with renewables. Uh, there's many times when the wind doesn't blow, you don't get solar on cloudy days and, and at night. And uh, the operators of electricity systems know that if you're going to add a lot of wind and solar, you have to keep around about 90% of the reliable electricity sources, uh, coal, natural gas, or nuclear, and you, and you run the, the natural gas and the coal at much lower utilization as, as you put more and more output with wind. But you end up increasing your system capacity, and all these systems you have to maintain, making it very expensive. So those are three, three big problems. And uh, to the extent that we try and put in wind and solar and we eliminate the other ones. By the way, let me, do we have time? I've I got to reach you a quick quote here. Yeah, please. Here. So a guy by the name of Mark Christie is a commissioner for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. He testified in front of the Senate in June of this year, and I'll quote him here. I think we are headed for very dire consequences, potentially catastrophic consequences in the United States in terms of the reliability of our grid. And he went on to point out that we're retiring coal and natural gas, and in some case nuclear, too fast. Those are the things that keep the light, uh, lights on. And so our grid is becoming unreliable. And if you look at data from the Energy Information Administration, the average blackout of an electricity rate payer was about three hours per year in 2012-2013. Now it's up over seven hours per year. So it's, it's degraded by more than twice. This is a nationwide statistic in the last 10 years. And this is a course we're on. This is one of the reasons we're going to have a green breakdown, because people are not going to put up with their, with their power being off. Um, why don't you to hang around one more one more break if we can because there's a lot of other things that I want to go over with you and again uh, so far nobody has called uh, to challenge you at all uh, Steve Gorham is my guest he's the author of Green Breakdown I would love to have somebody so far we've gotten nobody so far everybody that's called has agreed with Steve I'd love to get somebody that can challenge what he's saying challenge the data or just bring up a different perspective and have him address it 800-848-9222 hopefully we'll get your call on with steve straight ahead the other side of midnight it's the other side of midnight with frank morano
the Eurythmics. Here comes the rain again. At least it's not acid rain anymore. My guest is Steve Gorham, author of the book Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. Uh, Steve, let me ask you about that. Acid rain was something we heard a lot about in the late 80s, early 90s, and it seemed like there were some changes made in terms of environmental regulations, and then all of a sudden you stopped hearing about it. Is that an indication that the environmental regulations that were put in place at that time did work in terms of reducing or eliminating acid rain? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, We have done a great job of bringing down... Now, acid rain was caused by sulfur dioxide, uh, which was emitted from our power plants and our vehicles and other sorts of things. We've done a tremendous job of bringing that down. Uh, That's down about 70 or 80% since those laws went into effect in the 1980s and 1990s. So that's score score one for the environmentalists on that one. That's a good thing. That's a pollutant. Now, you've got to be a little careful, though. The problem is that we didn't really see the results in in the lakes and things there were there were lakes that were deemed to be acidic in the eastern u.s because of of sulfur dioxide and after it it was removed from the atmosphere (laughs) the lakes never changed they were naturally acidic uh germany had a similar effect they thought the schwarzwald the black forest was going to die uh and they cleaned up their air as well and and then the effects of of the dying forests were never really changed uh, the, the lakes that were acidic never got less acidic. I mean, so so a lot of these things are effects, and we don't really know the difference. I think it was a good thing that we reduced uh, sulfur dioxide emissions. It is very good that we, we reduce real pollution like carbon monoxide, lead, uh, ozone particulates. Those are all real good things. But the but the acid rain was a little misguided. Uh, and that and that we really didn't see the effects that, were, that they were expecting. And, and most of those areas that, that were acidic are, are still acidic. And, and so, Steve, and, and we have found some people that want to challenge you, so I want to get to them. Okay, but great. And I have a number of other questions as well, so you actually may have to come back in the future. But the um, just so I understand where you're okay. coming from, you're not pro-pollution. You don't want people recklessly putting all this junk into the air. You just think some of the solutions that some in the green lobby are proposing are not going to deliver the kind of change that that they're uh, promising. Yeah, first let me say we, we've done a great job with pollution in this nation. My, my grandfather had a coal furnace in his basement in the 1950s. And in Chicago, everybody was burning coal, and it would snow in Chicago, and after four or five days, there would be a black film of coal dust on all the snow. And the young folks may not know what uh, spring cleaning was for. Literally, in those days, people in the, in the spring, they would wash down their, the inside of all their walls to reduce the coal dust. Well, we've all gotten gas. We've cleaned things up. Our pollutants, according to the EPA, are down a combined 80% since 1980. But there, there are still there's still major problems to solve globally. Uh, distrib- uh, discharge of wastewater is still uh, going into rivers, lakes, and oceans in 80 percent of the countries. Not the not the U.S. and Europe so much. Uh, plastic in the oceans is a big deal. Where we've gone off track is this idea that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. Mm-hmm. That's nutty. Carbon dioxide is an odorless, harmless, invisible gas. Doesn't cause smoke or smog. It's great for making the plants grow. And each of us exhales about two pounds a day of carbon dioxide. And, and so we've, we've gotten this thing because of the greenhouse effect. We think, oh, my gosh, we've got to get rid of carbon dioxide. What we need to concentrate on is real pollution and not 
carbon dioxide emissions. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Sharon in New Jersey. Sharon, you're on with Steve Gorham. Yes. Hi, Sharon. Uh, yes, uh, good morning. Um, I just wanted you to think about the possibility that our government and possibly other governments uh, of a new world order have made alliances with extraterrestrials that would thrive if we did not have uh, the same atmosphere that would be uh, present so that the what they want is an atmosphere and an environment that would have more electricity throughout and would have less people, which would be uh, in accordance with uh, the U.N. All right, uh, Sharon. Uh, what about that, Steve? Can you respond to the extraterrestrial aspect of that? Well, that's a good one. <laughs> I, I don't think our atmosphere has really changed that much. So if you look at the atmospheric breakdown, only four of every 10,000 molecules in the atmosphere are carbon dioxide. And the amount that we could have added, that humans could have added in all of our history, is a fraction of one of those four molecules, a fraction of one in 10,000 molecules. So there hasn't been a real big change in, in the atmospheric makeup. It's so, very much similar that's been in all, all history. The, the thing we've been doing that's bad is putting carbon monoxide and lead in and those sorts of things. But the great news is that nations, as they get wealthier, they reduce those pollutants and they take those out. So the good news is that globally, as nations get wealthier, they're going to remove, remove those pollutants. But uh, really not an overall big atmospheric change. Steve, why do, if everything you say is true, and uh, obviously you, you make a very compelling case uh, on all this, why do so many intelligent people disagree with you? There are uh, there's scientists after scientists, and again, I know there are scientists on both sides, but the yeah. overwhelming scientific consensus is opposite of what you say. If what you say, which sounds so logical and so well-reasoned, is true, why do so many brilliant scientists disagree with you? Well, many do. I wouldn't say the consensus is overwhelming, but I, I will agree that I'm in the minority position here. Um, I think the world jumped to a conclusion. Uh, we had a bunch of computer modelers in the 1970s that noticed that atmospheric carbon dioxide was rising and thought that the greenhouse effect was going to be a problem. Uh, the Senate held a hearing in 1988. Dr. James Hansen of NASA, who was a computer, computer modeler, was kind of the star guy who testified said he was 99% sure the earth was warming, uh, people were causing it. One year later, the United Nations, who wanted to be environmental leaders, set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to study the effect, and, and the, the IPCC concluded within a year that humans were causing problems. And then by the Rio de Janeiro Earth Summit, 1992, three or four years later, uh, 40 nations signed treaties saying they would reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But over the last 30 years, we haven't had a warming like the models have projected. Uh, the polar bears are doing fine. We're not seeing more storms. We're not seeing more floods or droughts. And, and the projections are just not correct. So I think the world kind of jumped to a conclusion. Uh, but we're, re we're really in the biggest superstition in modern history right now. That's, that's really the, the charitable way I can call it. Uh, and, hey, we may have cooling in the, over the next two decades. Uh, it's very, very tough to predict what Earth's temperatures are going to do. But the climate's going to do what it is going to do. And, by the way, the best way to, to 
to uh, react to climate change is adaptation. If you want to, if you want to ha- solve ocean level rise, you do what Netherlands has done for 300 years: you build seawalls, you build islands, that sort of thing. If you want people to have uh, resistance to hurricanes uh, in the Caribbean, you get the, the wealth of their nations up, have them build concrete structures, and they'll have better resistance. Uh, if you want people to to uh, no. deal with the heat in Africa, most people don't have a fan in Africa. Uh, you you again get them low cost energy, you get them wealth, and and you let them adapt to the climate. Thinking you can do this with electric vehicles is just doesn't make any sense. Uh, Grant is in New Mexico. Grant, you're on with Steve. Hi, Grant. Hi. Um, nearly 10 million people died just from air pollution alone. That doesn't count the uh, amount of uh, sickness and everything else that goes with that. Yeah. Nor the water pollution or anything. And when your grandfather was young, there might only been uh, 4 billion people on the planet. Now we have nearly, uh, nearly 8 billion people. Yeah. And all those people want to drive uh, fossil fuel vehicles. And when they get these automobiles, like in New Delhi and India and all over, they're literally choking the planet. So uh, something's well, got to be done. The business as usual. I don't know if this guy's paid for by the fossil fuel industry, but he's <laughs> painting, a rough, painting a rosy picture uh, that doesn't exist. Something well, I'm not. A, Grant, a, let me uh, let me have Steve respond. Let me have Steve I don't respond. Have a, I, I don't. I'm not in the salary of any of any fossil fuel company. They do pay me if I go speak to them, but I go speak to agriculture and a lot of other groups. So what what you're saying, you know, I could if you want to send me an email, go to my website stevegorham.com. I can send you a lot of information. But basically, all the wealthy nations of the world are reducing air pollution. Air pollution is falling in the United States. It's falling in Canada. It's falling in Europe. Even China now, uh, particulate pollution in China peaked about 2014 and it has been falling since. There are nations that, as in every nation, when it grows, uh, when they don't have medicine and food and clothing, they don't really care about what's going into the air and the water. And so as they grow, the environment decays. But once they get to a certain level of income, uh, they start cleaning up their environment. And we see this over and over and over. And so... uh, you look at uh, Mexico City as an example, where that was it was rated by the United Nations as, as the most polluted city in the world in the mid 1990s. But they have they put in mass transit, they did a lot of other things, and their pollution levels are coming down. So uh, you really need to look at the numbers and see what's going on. But the good news story is, as countries develop, they eventually clean up their environment, their air, and their water as they get wealthier. Uh, I want to thank you, Steve. It uh, has been a fascinating conversation. If I do find somebody brave enough to take you on for a full hour, I hope you'll come back. Absolutely, uh, Frank. I'm always at your uh, disposal, and let's do it again. Thank you very, very much. You can check out Steve's book. If you're interested in learning more about the subjects that we have been covering, it's called um, it's called Green Breakdown. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. And it is Halloween. I love Halloween. I'm a big fan of scary movies. I like to see everybody in their different costumes. And, uh, you know, it's a it's an occasion where it doesn't involve getting gifts for people. You don't have to go through the stress of getting gifts for everybody on your list. You don't even have to go to the stress of sending out cards to everybody on your list. You don't have to. You're not expected to drive two, three, four hours to somewhere else so that you can have a big Halloween dinner somewhere. You kind of celebrate Halloween in your own way. There's not a lot of pressure to do anything. If you don't want to go out on Halloween, nobody gives you a hard time. If you want to stay home and watch The Bride of Frankenstein, you can do that. If you want to, uh, you know, go out and go to a Halloween party, you can do that. It's it's a great holiday because it kind of lets everybody celebrate it in their own way. I wish there was a little bit more of that in every holiday. Some good news coming out of yesterday's Halloween Eve. It is looking increasingly like this auto workers strike is over. Here's UAW President Sean Fain uh, there. If you're not up on this, they've been on strike and they have a tentative deal. The auto workers with GM as of yesterday, and that likely puts an end to six weeks of strikes that shut down large swaths of the auto industry. And this proposed settlement with GM is very similar to deals struck in the last few days with Ford and Stellantis. It would provide huge gains in wages and benefits, plus increased job security. We don't know the exact terms yet, but uh, we do know a little bit. Here's what Sean Fain said as he announced what he said was a strike victory. Good afternoon, UAW family. For the third time, I am honored to announce that we have yet another victory in our stand-up strike. Your bargaining committee worked hard through the night, and early this morning, we reached a tentative agreement with GM. Once again, we have won several astonishing victories. For the past several weeks, analysts and pundits were crying that our union was going too far, that we were demanding too much. We didn't listen to them, and we never let up. The result is one of the most stunning contract victories since the sit-down strikes in the 1930s. We were relentless in our fight to win a record contract. And that is exactly what we accomplished. If ratified, GM salaried workers will be provided general wage increases for the first time in our history. In fact, they will receive wage increases of 25% and cost of living allowance, matching what we have won for our hourly workers. This will be the most lucrative contract for salaried GM workers in their history. For our hourly workers, it's the same story. The starting wage for our assembly workers in our new GM agreement will increase about 70% with estimated cost of living from $18 an hour to over $30 an hour. And the top wage will increase about 33% from $32.32 an hour to $42.95 an hour. I think this is great news. I was rooting for the auto workers to win, I hope it doesn't lead to a tremendous uptick in what it costs to buy a car. But uh, what Sean Fain said, said there, in a nutshell, 25% wage increases over the four-and-a-half-year duration of the contract. An immediate 
11% raise upon ratification, a restoration of the cost of living adjustments that would bring pay increases to about 30% by 2028. Ford's deal includes a $5,000 ratification bonus, increased 401k contributions, and billions of dollars for plant renovations and new models. Under the Stellantis deal, the company would keep open factories in Trenton, in Michigan, and Toledo, Ohio. A former plant that they closed in Belvedere, Illinois, would reopen. The deals still have to be ratified by 146,000 UAW members across GM, Ford, and Stellantis, which is the parent company of Jeep, Ram, and Chrysler. And so the union didn't get everything that it wanted, but you never get everything you want. It was much steeper in the original contract. They wanted 40% raises and a 32-hour work week for 40 days of pay. I think this is great news. And if you work a standard 40-hour week, this basically will have you making $84,000 a year as an auto worker. And I think it's wonderful because the middle class is being nibbled away at and your dollar goes – Less and less with inflation being what it is. And the auto workers haven't even gotten a cost of living adjustment. And Henry Ford, whatever you think of Henry Ford, he understood that it was wise to pay his workers a living wage, more than a living wage, because he wanted somebody to be able to afford to buy his vehicles. Hopefully, these auto workers are now going to be in a position to actually buy some of the vehicles that they're helping to build. So I am uh, unabashedly pro-labor and especially private sector unions. I was glad that the uh, that the writers union was able to stave off some of the attacks by them that the producers were trying to push through. And while I'm sure they're not necessarily happy with me because my son got a Spider-Man costume, I am a big supporter of the SAG-AFTRA strike as well. I'm a member of SAG-AFTRA, although, again, there's a separate agreement for, you know, for radio performers. But uh, they didn't want you to use a costume of uh, a product that was striking. So I don't know. I think uh, I think this is great. I think organized labor is having a real moment in this country, and I think that's a healthy thing. I think the more the middle class grows, the more that we can see real wage growth for middle class Americans, the better we all are. So I think it's a, I think it's a tremendous positive. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Here's the vice president of the UAW talking about the different wage rates at the three companies. Of all three companies, General Motors has long been the worst actor in the terms of dividing our members across the different wage tiers. Our production workers were at one wage scale, while GMCH workers were on another. CCA workers make yet another wage. Meanwhile... We have GM subsystems worker who are on an entirely different contract. The same is true for workers at Brownstown. And then there's the army of temporary workers employed at General Motors, many of who spent years working at a lower rate before being hired in as a seniority worker. We believe in equal pay for equal work. The company wants us divided, fighting over the different size crumbs each group gets, while the company executives and the wealthy shareholders walk away with the whole pie. 
We put an end to that in this round of contract negotiations. And why is this? The working class was beaten down. Well, now we stood up. In this agreement, all of those workers, GMCH, CCA, Brownstown, and subsystems will be brought into the main production wage scale under our master agreement. I'm curious as to your view of the situation, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. I'll tell you, uh, as pro-labor as I am, a, a group of workers that I had much less sympathy for is just a few blocks from where we are right now, and that is the tech workers at the New York Times. They did a walkout yesterday afternoon to protest the company's return to office policy. And I just read this and I just think, uh, what crybabies? Cry I mean, the, the auto workers are really, they've been, they've gone for years without even a cost of living adjustment. The writers are battling not getting, um, not getting residuals for the streaming shows. The actors are fighting against having themselves erased by AI. And the tech workers at the New York Times don't want to have to go back to work, something that everybody else does. Give me a break. So the Times Tech Guild, which represents more than 600 staffers, is trying to negotiate its first contract with management after voting to unionize last year. The Guild has argued that new remote work policies violate the terms and conditions set when their union was ratified last year. A Times spokesperson told Axios in August that the company's return to office policies were introduced before the tech guild was recognized. The New York Times Guild, which represents the majority of Times newsroom workers, joined the Times Times Tech Guild in sending cease and desist letters to management in August over the issues. What? All because you don't want to come back to the office? I'm sure a lot of people don't like to make the trip into work. You got to go to work. This is what people do. The Tech Guild, which includes nearly 700 software engineers, data analysts, project managers, product managers, and designers, began their walkout at 1 p.m. yesterday. They held a rally. Here's a little bit of the New York Times workers chanting outside of the New York Times building. What's disgusting? Union busting. What's appalling? Boston's calling. What's disgusting? Union busting. What's appalling? Boston's calling. What's disgusting? Union busting. And, and again, maybe I'm missing something here, but you're going to have to explain this to me. Uh, I don't think it's union busting to ask people to come into the office to do their job. Now, my wife works from home, and thank God. I don't know that we'd be able to manage our living situation, uh, having a child and doing everything that we both do, if she had to go into work every day like I do. But if she, if her job told her that she had, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a different situation because her job is based in Chicago. But if her job told her that she had to go into the office every day, she'd have to make a decision. Is the money that she's making, is the uh, satisfaction that she's getting out of this job worth the inconvenience of, of doing 
the work in the office rather than working from home? And if the answer was no, you know what she would do? She'd get another job. So they uh, had about 500 people participating in that uh, in that rally. And they're saying that the Times is now not only refusing to recognize their rights to bargain on return to office, but it's now going a step further and using it as a tactic to intimidate us. I I don't view it that way. I don't view it that way at all. I think allowing people the flexibility to work together in an office, which is great for collaboration, it's great for the creative process, it's great for relationship building, it's great for all the other ancillary businesses in the area. It benefits everyone, including these workers that are protesting for their right to stay home and work in their pajamas. It's important to have a strong, collaborative, in-office work environment. And so I am, um, as pro-labor as I am, I think the New York Times is right on this one. And if you don't want to have a job where you actually have to go into the office, I'm sure there's a lot of technology professionals in this climate that would. So I, uh, I am all for... The UAW work stoppage, I'm glad they got such a good deal. But as much as I love the labor movement and am a union member, although I am behind my on my dues about $4,000, I um, am working on coming up with that, by the way, if anybody from our union is listening. I really think the New York Times Tech Guild is going too far on this one. I, I think to make this your cause – I think it kind of diminishes what other unions have had to go through in terms of trying to win real concessions like the UPS people, the um, Amazon workers and others. Hey, uh, in a minute, we're going to talk with uh, Thomas Graham about the Russia situation and about what's going on in the Middle East. Let me take a couple of quick calls here first. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hey, good morning. How are you? Listen, good for these auto workers. I'm glad they're getting paid. These auto companies, they were going to use one way or the other. They're going to bang you over the head for the cost of a car. You mentioned before that the prices will go up um, and they'll blame the unions. But they were going to blame the cost of making a car without the unions and just charge the regular everyday man anyway. Well said, JR. Couldn't have said it any better. June in Manhattan, real quick. Yes, um, I'm all for the UAW. I believe in unions. But... GM went bankrupt a few years ago, and my middle-class family lost everything to their bankruptcy. And then they had the nerve to call me to say, did I want to buy their stock again oh, boy. six months later? Oh, well, talk about hubris. I'm sorry that happened to your family, June, and I'm sorry uh, I have to run. We're going to talk uh, foreign policy with Thomas Graham straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. (laughs) 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Obviously, for the last few weeks, the almost the entirety of the news media's attention when it comes to foreign policy has been spent on the Middle East situation. And in a lot of ways, that's understandable. Thousands of people dead and uh, no signs that this war shows any signs of uh, mitigating anytime soon. But an interesting thing happened. I was reading the Wall Street Journal over the weekend and they did an interview with uh, Natan Sharansky. And, you know, you go down these rabbit holes, at least I do, when you think, oh, gee, oh, Natan Sharansky, and you listen to his perspective on Israeli politics, and you listen to his perspective on what was happening in the waning days of the Soviet Union when he was released as a political prisoner under Mikhail Gorbachev. And then you go back and look at how rosy things looked in the last days of Mikhail Gorbachev and the beginning days of Boris Yeltsin. And then you go back and look at the news clippings of President Clinton and President Yeltsin together, of even President Bush and President Putin. And you wonder, to paraphrase Vito Corleone in The Godfather, how did things ever get so far? Whereas a country who 30 years ago looked to, if not be an ally, at least have the potential to have warm relations, how have they gotten to the point where Russia is either number one or number two on the United States' international enemies list? And as you start to explore that, you can easily see a lot of the parallels behind what's going on in the Middle East and maybe some intersections between those two conflicts. And unfortunately, and from my completely layman perspective, I view them both as having the potential to spiral out of control into a multi-country hot war. Somebody that is genuinely an expert is Thomas Graham. He's the author of the book Getting Russia Right. He's also a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a co-founder of the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Program at Yale University. He was special assistant to the president and senior director for for Russia on the National Security Council staff from 2004 through 2007. And in that time, he managed a White House Kremlin strategic dialogue. So there's a good chance he may know what he's talking about. Very pleased to welcome to the program Thomas Graham. Mr. Graham, it's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. Let me begin with what, uh, you know, I haven't read your book yet. I'm looking forward to reading it. I'm uh, poised to get a copy. You, the, na- the title of the book is Getting Russia Right. That sort of implies that we are currently getting something wrong or that we're poised to be getting something wrong about foreign policy with Russia or at least our perceptions of Russia. What are we getting wrong or what are we poised to get wrong? Well, I mean, the, the point of getting Russia right was really to, to argue that Russia is going to remain a, a major power and a major challenge to the United States in the future, no matter what happens in a conflict uh, in Ukraine. And for that reason, it pays to go back over the past 30 years to understand how we got from what looked like a, uh, a period in which we could aspire to build an, endur- an enduring uh, partnership to a, a time when Russia is probably the number one adversary that we face on the global stage today, at least in the view of, uh, of Washington. Um, so what did we get wrong? 
uh, I think the fundamental thing we got wrong back in the 1990s is that we didn't understand uh, that Russia was not so much interested in a, a transition to democracy. What it was interested in was restoring its power, being a great power on the global stage uh, and a great power much in the tradition of Russia uh, throughout the, the decades and centuries. Uh, and that country uh, has been very much a rival of the United States from the moment the United States itself emerged as a global power at the end of the 19th century. So when we look at how things got to the point that they've gotten to at this point, how did things go so badly post-Cold War? Is it one big incident or is it sort of a death by a thousand cuts where it's a bunch of little incidents that caused relations between our two countries to sour? Well, it's something probably in between uh, in between those two. You know, not a thousand cuts, but, um, you know, a dozen or, or so over time. Uh, you know, some of them, the responsibility largely of the United States, I think that clearly in the early post-Cold War period. Some of them um, were the consequence of the actions and ideas um, that are held by a Russian president, President Vladimir Putin. And that, I think, is certainly true over the last decade. Um, to give you an example, uh, I think there were two things that the United States did in the 1990s and the 2000s uh, that caused Russia to rethink its relationship with the United States. Uh, one was the expansion of Euro-Atlantic institutions, that's NATO, uh, the European Union, uh, into Eastern Europe, close to Russia's borders, um, which, in a sense, pushed Russia uh, out of Europe, something that uh, uh, they resented. And the second was uh, the activities that the Bush administration in particular uh, undertook in what the former Soviet Union, places like uh, Georgia, uh, Ukraine, the Central Asian states, uh, that were aimed at eroding Russia's presence uh, in that uh, in, in that region. Uh, and you need to understand that Russians saw this region uh, as a foundation uh, of their geopolitical heft. It, it was what made them a great power. So those two things, uh, in particular by American administrations, uh, caused uh, the Russian leadership to reassess its uh, relations with the United States and to push back more assertively against U.S. actions in and around Russia itself. One of the things that I do wonder about is wh- how the relationship did or didn't change after September 11th. Obviously, after September 11th, the focus of the Bush administration and more broadly, the American, uh, the whole American government became going after terrorism, specifically of the Islamic fundamentalist variety. Vladimir Putin has never seemed to have much of a patience for terrorism either. Why didn't Russia become sort of a, a natural ally through shared enemies after September 11th, particularly given what President Bush said to the nation that there are essentially only two choices post 9-11. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Which side was Vladimir Putin on? Well, he was on on our side and he wanted to be on our side and we wanted him to be on our side at that point. Uh, The problem was that uh, we looked at terrorism in somewhat different ways and we had different terrorist challenges. Uh, For us, as you already pointed out, it was al-Qaeda. We wanted Russia to help us to deal with al-Qaeda. Well, Russia thought it had a terrorism threat as well, and it was called Chechnya. 
This is a small uh, republic in the North Caucasus. Uh, and um, the Chechens were in rebellion against uh, against Russia at that in, in the 2000s. But Putin and the, Rus- and the Russian leadership considered them terrorists. We thought of them as more uh, as freedom fighters. And so there was a fundamental uh, divide between the way we identified terrorists in the real world. We focused on Islamic terrorists, al-Qaeda, uh, the, the Russians on the Chechens, and the Russians uh, uh, never thought that they got the uh, assistance from the United States they expected uh, in a war on terrorism, nor did we get the type of uh, robust uh, cooperation with the Russians in dealing with al-Qaeda. One of the things, you know, I want to come back to the Chechen situation and ask you about any comparison to the Middle East. But uh, just sticking with with Russia and where we are now, there are sort of dueling narratives that have emerged about Russia, what Russia is doing and what it's been doing since the beginning of this Ukraine conflict. The people that view Russia as uh, a solely the bad guy without any nuance, they essentially spin the narrative that Russia wants to rebuild the Soviet Union and that they are hell-bent on domination of Eastern Europe and they want sort of a, a Russian Empire 3.0. The kind of pro-Russia narrative that they're trying to spin, both in Russia and internationally, is that the Ukrainians were slaughtering innocent ethnic Russians, refusing to adhere to the terms of the Minsk agreement, refusing to allow people in the uh, eastern Ukrainian Donbass republics to determine for themselves what they wanted to do, and that the U.S. throughout all this was hell-bent on NATO expansion. Given your expertise and the fact that you've been studying this for decades, sir, are either of those narratives fully correct? The short answer is not expected the answer to be uh, no. I mean, certainly Russia uh, now wants to expand its its territory and it has a particular uh, beef with uh, with Ukraine that you've laid out uh, in some detail. Uh, but that said, uh, I see very little evidence uh, that Russia wants to expand territorially uh, in the eastern in the eastern Europe. I think Russia also recognizes the extreme danger if it even attempted something like that, since uh, the Eastern European countries, Poland, the Baltic states, for example, uh, are members of NATO. Uh, and any attack by Russia uh, on NATO would bring into a, uh, an operation the so-called Article 5 guarantee of collective security. And the United States would almost certainly get involved uh, in that conflict in a way that uh, could lead to a direct military confrontation between Russia uh, and the United States. Uh, the Russians don't want that, uh, and I think the, the Russians are deterred uh, to, a, to a great extent. When it comes to the Russian narrative, um, yes, uh, there were problems in the Donbass. There were problems with the way um, the, the Russian minority was being treated there, but nothing of the, the scale that the Russians are talking about. It, wasn't, uh, it didn't approach anything that we would call uh, genocide. Uh, there wasn't an effort to... Uh, uh, deprive the the Russians of their, their cultural rights, uh, educational rights, and so forth. A lot of that is fabricated to explain uh, a, an act of, uh, of aggression 
uh, against Ukraine. So what do you think the real rationale is beyond the fabrication? What do you think the real reason Putin went into Ukraine is? Well, I think that the Russians, by and large, are concerned about their security. uh, And they see security in what we call strategic death buffer zones. Uh, And they were concerned about uh, NATO's growing presence in in, in Ukraine. Uh, They were concerned about the steps by the Ukrainian government that were clamping down or cracking down on what they would call pro-Russian forces inside Ukraine. Uh, And that is what drove... um, Uh, President Putin uh, to undertake a military operation. Uh, You know, that said, I think it's important to remember uh, that much of the the Russian political elite really didn't support uh, a military operation Mm. at that point. They knew there was a problem with Ukraine, but they thought it could be solved uh, diplomatically. Uh, Putin decides to invade. And I think that is is due to uh, some fundamental attributes about uh, uh, President Putin himself. Uh, he has developed a uh, what I call a messianic view of uh, Russia, of his role in history. Uh, he thinks of himself as a great czar, uh, as someone who expands Russian territory. Uh, he sees Russia as the uh, as the leader of a um, of an anti-colonial movement on an, uh, on the global scale. Uh, he underestimated grossly uh, the extent to which the Ukrainians would resist the extent to which the West would unite behind Ukraine, and he opened to a a great extent the capabilities of the Russian military. So he thought this would be a quick war, it would be over uh, in a matter of weeks. Um, The West would do nothing. Uh, Reality turned out to be quite different, And, and what was supposed to be a blitzkrieg has turned into a war of attrition. Well, let me ask you about that. Because, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Thomas Graham, one of the most experienced thinkers on the subject of Russia, one of the most experienced educators, writers, and uh, somebody that's been a diplomat himself. His book is Getting Russia Right. One of the things that I have had such a difficult time with, and I don't think it's for lack of research attempts on my part is trying to get an accurate number of casualties as to how many people have died on the Ukrainian side, how many people have died on the Russian side. Understanding that uh, governments have an agenda in the numbers that they put out there, do you have any idea what the current casualty numbers are on both sides of this conflict? We we can only make estimates. I mean, the governments treat these as closely held state secrets. I mean, the only number that the Russian put, the Russians put out about casualties was way back in September of 20, uh, 2022, and the number was like four or 5,000, a gross underestimate at that point. But when you look at the scale of the, uh, of the conflict, uh, if you look at the, uh, the numbers of artillery shells that have been launched against uh, one another, uh, you know, the estimate is that we're talking about casualties in the tens of thousands, um, you know, probably a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand on both sides. So it's a very, um, it's a devastating conflict. Will have long-term uh, consequences for the demographic, uh, the demography of, uh, of both countries, uh, and the slaughter is continuing as we speak. 
Is there a way that this ends diplomatically? And is the United States playing any role, even if it's behind the scenes rather than publicly, in bringing uh, bringing about a diplomatic end to this? There is no evidence that anybody wants a diplomatic solution to the problem right now. Uh, The Ukrainians believe that they can get what they want on the battlefield. The Russians believe uh, the same, that they can get what they want on the battlefield. Uh, The United States has stood uh, behind Ukraine from the very beginning, uh, providing them along uh, with our our NATO partners and and European uh, European allies uh, with the the finances and the the military equipment that they need to maintain this conflict. Um, There is a presidential election in in Russia in, in March of 2024. We all know who's going to win that election, uh, but nevertheless, uh, Putin is not going to back down uh, and show weakness in his mind uh, when uh, he wants to score a big uh, electoral victory. We have elections in the United States next year. We're not going to back away from uh, Ukraine. Certainly this administration is. Uh, and for the Ukrainian government, uh, they are responding to, to public pressure. Polls in Ukraine demonstrate that the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians want to continue the, the conflict. The overwhelming majority of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine still has the capability of driving Russia out of all the territory that it has occupied uh, since 2014, since the seizure of Crimea. The um, the you mentioned the situation involving uh, Chechnya. Do you see any similarities? And it's fine if you don't. I'm just curious between the Russia Chechnya situation and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. How do those two conflicts and relationships parallel one another as far as you're concerned? I mean, there there are drastic differences between those two conflicts. Um, You know, Chechnya uh, grew out of, uh, I think, discontenting Chechnya about oppressive um, policies uh, from Moscow towards the Chechen uh, people. And this has a deep history, goes back into the 19th century. Um, uh, The uh, travesties that were committed against the the Chechens by Stalin in the Second uh, World War, deporting all the people from Chechnya out to Central Asia uh, for uh, a decade or or longer. Uh, And so that led to resistance against uh, Russia uh, in the context of the breakup of the Soviet Union uh, and an effort to we ordered the political structure throughout the former Soviet uh, space. Uh, what you're seeing in Gaza uh, is really the, the outcome of a, uh, of a terrorist organization that is committed to the elimination of, uh, of Israel uh, as a Jewish state uh, that uh, committed a, a, a what we can only call an atrocity on October 7th, butchering 1,400 uh, innocent people. Um, uh, a genuine terrorist attack uh, that uh, that Israel, Jerusalem, is responding to in a quite forceful fashion at the moment. What, as far as you can tell, is what role is Russia playing in this Israel-Hamas conflict right now? I, there were reports that some of the Hamas leadership was meeting with some of the Russian leadership, and uh, there does seem to be this sort of this uh, alliance of 
entities that the United States isn't too crazy about right now, namely Russia, China, Iran, Lebanon. What is Russia doing with respect to the Israeli-Hamas conflict now? Right. Almost nothing that is of, uh, of great significance. And you're absolutely right. There were conversations between Hamas leaders and, and Russian leaders in Moscow uh, in the past week. Uh, those uh, talks focused in many ways on uh, on uh, Russian citizens that have been taken hostage uh, by uh, uh, by Hamas. Uh, you know, probably some other uh, conversations about how things were going and uh uh, and, and what Russia may or may not do in terms of support. But most of the support has only been uh, rhetorical and has been support uh, specifically for the for the Palestinians. Uh, you know, other than that, uh, Russia has really been noticed, noticeable by its absence as a major player uh, in this conflict. Uh, China, in addition, is a country uh, that has had very little to say about this conflict uh, and not engaged in a major diplomatic way. Iran, of course, is another matter at the very heart of this, uh, and the focal point of our concerns about escalation. Uh, Iran has already said that uh, it is prepared to open up a second front against Israel uh, if this incursion into Gaza, the Israeli incursion into Gaza, uh, goes too far, does too much uh, harm to, to Palestinians. That's the real concern that the United States has now of a, a wider war that grows out of uh, an Iranian response to the, what the Israelis are doing right now. Do you see uh, a realistic danger of a global hot war with all of these people that are currently lined up on opposite sides of the leisure? Uh, Russia, China, Iran, Lebanon, H- Hamas on one side, Israel, the United States, other entities that, uh, you know, that are part of the broader NATO scope, maybe accepting Turkey on the other side of the ledger. I don't think you're going to see a global war. Uh, you could see the the war in the Middle East escalate uh, so that uh, it, it uh, escalates beyond uh, Gaza itself. Uh, we're already seeing um, unrest in the West Bank. Uh, we're seeing unrest in some hostilities uh, in southern Lebanon, northern uh, north uh, northern Israel. Uh, I could see a play out a scenario uh, that leads to a broader regional conflict. Uh, in in the Middle East that would involve Iran, Israel, uh, the United States to some extent, uh, perhaps the Saudis uh, and a few others. Uh, But it's hard to see that then escalating into a global uh, contest that brings the Russians and the Chinese. And I think that is uh, quite unlikely at this point. Uh, But, you know, a a wider conflict in the Middle East would have uh, devastating consequences, certainly for uh, the countries in the region, uh, but it would have a dramatic impact on, on energy markets, uh, impact on the oil uh, that is exported out of um, uh, out of the Middle East. So we see a sharp rise in uh, gasoline prices here in the United States. Um, it would uh, uh, lead to, as I said, likely American action as well. And we'd have to be concerned about uh, the extent to which uh, American the troops would be uh, would be on the ground involved in conflict uh, alongside Israel against various terrorist organizations uh, and likely Iran itself. 
One of the things that we've seen in the last couple of weeks has been increased calls for military action against Iran. Senator Lindsey Graham has been very vocal on that front. Former Senator Joe Lieberman has said the same thing on uh, on a lot of the stations that carry this program. Alan Dershowitz, although obviously not a senator, still carries a lot of weight when discussing affairs as it relates to Israel. He's called for the same thing. How do you see that playing out if the United States were to move forward with military action against Iran? Well, I mean, that's a quite um, dangerous situation for us. Um, you know, we'd have to think carefully about the extent of the, uh, of the military operation. What exactly are we trying to achieve um, and how are we going to achieve and how does military force help us achieve that goal? Uh, you know, we have misread the situation uh, in a number of Middle Eastern states over the past decade or longer. Think about Iraq. Uh, think about what has happened in Libya. Um, so I think that, you know, an administration needs to think long and hard uh, before it uses military force. Uh, it has to have a clear idea uh, of what it's trying to achieve. It needs to have a deep understanding uh, of what the likely reaction is from a country that's going, uh, that, we're, that we're planning on attacking uh, and we always have to have um, uh, an exit strategy. When do we know uh, that we've accomplished our goal? When is the time uh, to leave? Uh, and will we leave under conditions that are satisfactory as far as long-term stability in, in that country is concerned uh, and long-term American interest uh, more broadly in the Middle East? We're talking with Thomas Graham. His book is Getting Russia Right. I know it's late. I'll let you go to bed in a minute, sir. But I just have to ask you this. For a lot of the reasons that you pointed out in the last 15 minutes, the situations in the Middle East are very different from the situations in Eastern Europe. And I'm wondering if you think it was a mistake for President Biden to combine the Ukraine and Israel situations, both rhetorically in that primetime address last week that he did and legislatively in terms of seeking an aid package where the funding is sort of uh, tied together, tied up with one another and asking Congress to vote on both because of the uniqueness of each situation. Do you think the president would have been better off focusing on each conflict individually rather than kind of trying to group Hamas and Russia into this axis of evil 2.0? Yeah, I think it makes more sense uh, to, to keep those separate and uh, to explain clearly to the American public what is at stake in each of those conflicts uh, and why the administration is undertaking uh, the actions that it is in support of both uh, Israel uh, and Ukraine. Uh, you know, as far as the, the appropriations bill is concerned, um, you know, there's some political logic to combining the two, particularly given um uh, the growing opposition in the, the, uh, within the Republican Party to supporting Ukraine, uh, while meaning, uh, while the Republicans remain firm in support of, uh, of Israel, so you put those uh, those two together, perhaps you have a better chance of, of getting the uh, the level of support that you think you you need. All that said, uh, you know it appears that uh, the new Speaker of the House wants to keep, uh, keep those bills separate. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for the administration to proceed the way it wants to legislatively. And that, I think, then throws the onus back on the administration to explain why Israel, why we need to support Ukraine. Um, 
on uh, uh, on the basis of the the those individual conflicts, not bring them together, uh, but explain them each separately. Thomas Graham, thank you so much for the time. I hope we can chat again soon. You're certainly welcome. Have a good evening. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you could give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. I put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Screaming Jay Hawkins, I put a spell on you. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, just go and join our Facebook group. We post the songs there each and every morning. Uh, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. It's also a place to be, you know, to communicate about this subject and about the issues that we're dealing with on this show. If uh, there's a guest that you're interested in, a guest you have comments about, or a subject that I bring up that you want to hear more about or hear a little less about, post about it in there. Anything related to the show. Um, I'm excited. We're going to take Carmine trick-or-treating today. He's going to be Spider-Man. I just, we got his outfit yesterday, his costume yesterday, because his Elmo costume didn't fit. He tried it on yesterday and had a big, uh, got a big kick out of it. I just posted a photo on Instagram of Carmine dressed as Spider-Man. If you want to see it, you can just go uh, on Instagram and search Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. And it was quite a scene at the, uh, at the hollow, at the costume store. Because uh, my wife wanted me to video conference her when I was close to making a decision about the outfit. So I'm carrying – I also had to get a a bucket for him to get candy. So I'm carrying a bucket. I'm carrying him because it's crowded and I don't want him to run away. I'm trying to carry – I'm trying to go through other things. And I'm trying to hold my phone to video conference my wife so she can see the different costumes. And it's just it's just crazy. So I get her on there and I'm showing her these different things. And and she and Carmine, as soon as I put him down, because all he's saying is down, down, down. He's trying to run away, run all over the store. So it was very difficult. But for the most part, he was a uh, a very good boy. And so when we got home after he tried his Spider-Man outfit on, which you could check out uh, on Instagram, Morano Vision, he wanted to watch a, a little Mickey Mouse. And th- he just does this thing at the very beginning of the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse that I just get such a kick out of. Mickey Mouse asks if you want to come in the clubhouse. I mentioned this yesterday. And Carmine 
aggressively says yes, depending. Sometimes he says it calmly. But this was him yesterday. Here's Mickey Mouse, who is not in the public domain until January. So thanks to Disney for letting us use this. And then uh, Carmine responding to Mickey Mouse. Hey, everybody. It's me, Mickey Mouse. Say, you want to come inside my clubhouse? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he says, yeah, yeah. Whoa, he gets really excited. And obviously it's just radio, so you can't see the video. But he, he gets, he instantly has just a, a smile, a grin from ear to ear. So as much as I'm not a proponent of television, I think on, on a once-in-a-while basis, it's pretty fun to see him get so excited about uh about Mickey Mouse. And I'm looking forward to going trick-or-treating with him today. We're going to make the rounds all over our neighborhood. So if you live in our neighborhood, hopefully you will be generous with the candy. 800-848-9222. Russell's in West Virginia. Russell, we've got about a minute here. It's all yours. Okay, I was going to give you the comment about it. Uh, we all should help one another because the Bible says so, but the Bible's what's keeping us to but Biden is going stretched out too far. Russell, I'm going to I'm going to end it there just because we're out of time. I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the brevity of your comment. Look, I I, uh, I believe in God, certainly, but I don't think we should be taking political advice from the Bible. That's my view. A lot of people, a lot of people disagree. So it is what it is. All right. Um, in the meantime, in the immortal words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Today is Halloween. Uh, You know what that means. You know what yesterday was. Yesterday was a holiday that doesn't get nearly as much attention, doesn't get nearly as much recognition. Yesterday was National Candy Corn Day. And I must tell you, candy corn is everywhere on Halloween. You go trick-or-treating, you go to a Halloween party, you go anywhere and they give these little goodie bags out. And they give out candy corn. And as I said when I was discussing Halloween earlier, the best thing about Halloween is different strokes for different folks. You want to make a big thing of it? You can. You want to put up a whole elaborate set of animatronic destinations? Go for it. If you just want to put up, you know, at our house we have just our basically a jack-o'-lantern and a couple of other fall decorations. That's pretty much it. But... One issue that I have just never understood, and again, it's a matter of personal preference and a personal taste, is candy corn. I absolutely despise candy corn. Even just thinking about it, 
thinking about chewing it and the way it goes into your mouth, it I, I almost want to gag just thinking about it. And I do not understand how this particular candy has lasted as long as it has. I find it absolutely revolting. Now, I'm glad it's there because clearly a lot of people like it. Uh, Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, Virginia Democrat, said it's her favorite candy. Not the pumpkin-shaped candy corn. She's a fan of the original tricolor kernel-style candy corn. Whatever. Different strokes for different folks. I am in the... This is a polarizing candy. I don't know why. The guy that I agree with the most, who I think summed this up perfectly yesterday, was the the, the writer for The Hill or the reporter for The Hill, Brandon Wilkin. He said, and I think he's right on the money on this one, candy corn is an abomination. It's neither candy nor corn. It's just flavored wax and not even a good flavor. I wish I had come up with that myself because, again, if you like candy corn, great. Not only do I want you to enjoy it, I want to give you mine. But I just don't understand And again, I guess different palates have different ways of reacting to different stimuli. I don't understand it. I don't understand how anyone consumes it. Uh, To me, it just it tastes like it was created in an experiment to create candy that went wrong. And this is the byproduct of this. I just I not only do I not like it, I can't eat it. Even if I try, I just can't. Curious how you feel. On the candy corn front, 800-848-9222. Look, it is popular. It has a whole holiday. People keep buying it. People keep distributing it. But as um, as Carmine has now matured from baby to toddler, I have found it is not as easy to take candy from a toddler because they are so quick. But I can promise you that if he gets any candy corn when we go trick-or-treating later today... I will not be trying to take that from him. No, sir. No way. 800-848-9222. Where do you come down on candy corn? One of the most polarizing candies of our time. 800-848-9222. If you want to share any written correspondence, you can email me and I will read your email on the air in about a half hour. Frank.Morano. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. You're also welcome to comment on anything else we've covered today. I know Charlie in Hell's Kitchen's been holding a while. Charlie, what's on your mind? First of all, I absolutely agree with you 110% about candy corn. Mm-hmm. I'm on your team. I'm on your side. You're absolutely Thank you. right. Yeah, I mean that, and you couldn't be more right. Uh, about the, uh, I do disagree with you about the tech side. You're not a big supporter of the tech union and their walkout. Well, no, I, Normally, I would be a supporter of them if they were striking or not striking, walking out for an issue that I thought had more merit. For them to rebel in this manner over not wanting to work from the office, I just find that a little, I don't know, a little spoiled. Well, I would say this to you, though, about that. The reason why they want to work from home and they don't want to come into the city, and I could tell you personally why it is, is 
is is the crime. And that I know this is another issue. And we talk about it and other hosts talk about it issues. But, I mean, today when I left my apartment, I walked out around Hell's Kitchen. You know, someone saw a young kid ran up to me and slapped the yarmulke off my head. And I, I assume what? You're kidding. This stuff. No, I'm serious. Wow, you know, I'm sorry that ran happened. Ran away. But I am too. But I assume this is a young kid ran away just laughing. And I assume this has something to do with the stuff that's going on in Israel. I want to talk about that to the horror show that's going on. Israel, it's in the news and everything. And that brings up a second point I want to say it's important. I, I think Sid Rosenberg is must listen to radio. Uh, he has a voice of clarity and passion. Is, yes, certainly anger. But I, I think he's absolutely right. And, uh, and with this horror show going on, I think uh, Sid and Friends is uh, it's appointment radio. And, and it really is. And I can understand why the tech people don't want to come into the city because of the crime. And no, nobody wants to talk about that. Mayor Adams says oh, well, crime rates are down. Well, that's because the police aren't making as many arrests. That's because yeah. people aren't reporting it, crime. But yeah, crime uh, Charlie, I definitely down. think that's a uh, that's a broader issue, which I'm happy, which I have addressed, and I'm happy to address in the future. I just um, I, I, look. We're all going into the office. We're all taking our chances. Come in, come in. If uh, you want to go and be a part of a walkout to uh, make more arrests or. I don't know, uh, do something to get the criminals to stop robbing people, then go for it. But I think if that's the rationale, I think it, I think you need a lot more than that. Jeffrey in the Queens, where are you on candy corn? Hey, Frank, I remember how as a boy, I loved it. And then I remember as, as you know, when you become older and you look back at your life, how I couldn't believe that I loved it. It was so disgusting. So when did it change for you? When did your taste change on that one? Well, I don't know. I think it was like, you know, I, I ate the candy for years, and then I, I stopped eating them. Years, ten years later, I returned. So what, what did I used to eat? And I, I ate, I, I took a piece of candy corn. I said, I cannot believe that I actually love this ten years ago, you know. Yeah, I, 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 what, listen, yeah go ahead. Something else, Frank. Mm-hmm. I, I, I called last night, I forgot the reason why I called. A, a, bit of, a bit of whimsy on Halloween. You know, we, we, we say trick or treat, right? Right. But we know it's 100% treat. There's no tricks. But I said, picture this. In a utopian society, 50% of the people are like David Blaine's. And they can all do amazing tricks. So <laughs> the kids would either get candy or a trick that, that blows them away. And they'd say, forget the candy. Do that trick again, man. I, I like that, Jeffrey. I like that. That's very funny. You know, obviously, I don't think a lot of kids really do this anymore. But the whole reason you say trick or treat is if you don't get a treat, then you get tricked then they do some sort of prank on your house. And that's why, basically, it's teaching children extortion. You're teaching children from a very young age, hey, nice uh, nice pumpkin you got there, right? Be a shame if something happened to it. Oh, yes, it would be. What can I do to uh, avoid a, an accident happening to this pumpkin? You got any full-size Hershey? And then that is basically the whole basis of trick-or-treat. That we're teaching our two-year-old. There you have it. 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. When Fred Rubino was here, the uh, comedian off-air, he said to me, Boy, you know, your son may look Irish, but you can tell he's really Italian. Because as soon as that alarm started going off in your aunt's house, he said, Let's get out of here. 
<laughs> so I thought that was funny. 800-848-9222. Russell is in North Carolina. Ru- oh, excuse me. Larry is on Long Island. Hi, Larry. Frank, two things. Candy corn, screaming Jay Hawkins. How's that? <laughs> Go, lay it on so, me. Here we go. So let's start with candy corn. I'm convinced candy corn was invented in a lab in China. 100%. That's where it comes from. Put that aside. Screaming Jay Hawkins. Go back with me 50 years ago. As a musician, I took two years off from club dating, put my tuxedos away, and joined a club band, a bar band. We, We did clubs one month at a time, and we moved around. They hired... The, the club was called the St. James Infirmary, huge club on Long Island, Deer Park Avenue. It was either Babylon or Deer Park. They hired Screaming Jay Hawkins for the weekend, and we had to back him up. It was oh. the worst. What's that? No, no, go ahead. Finish your sentence. Oh, it was the worst music musical experience I've ever had in my life. Number one, he hated me. I'm a drummer. He did, he did a Ray Charles song, and I didn't know how to do the beat. And he hated me. Put that aside, the worst part of dealing with him, he would do his voodoo acts, right? He all dressed up, right. and with the full, I put a spell on you. What he did, this goofy guy, because he was, he was you know past his prime at that point, he lost control of that stick that shoots fire and, and rays and everything. And he burned our keyboard player with what? second degree burns. Oh my true story. goodness. That's horrible. True, yeah. True story. Wow. Well, I, I still like his music though, Larry. Oh, listen, I, I liked him. The fact that he hated me, I don't take it personally. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. 800-848-9222. Russell in North Carolina. Where are you on candy corn? Candy corn is terrible. But do you know what candy corn is, though? It's kind of like fruitcake. You only eat it, like, once a year. I mean, I wouldn't eat any of it. But but it's like 20-plus years ago when my wife was in college. I wasn't, but she was. And we would go to, you know, the late-night drive through it. Taco Bell or Wendy's, it's just something you do. It's terrible, and you know it's terrible, <laughs> but you do it. You know what I mean? You do it because you have. It's like a rite of passage or whatever you want to call it. I mean, you just you do it, and then yeah, then when you get into your forties or whatever, you say, well, "What did I do?" But yeah, I mean, that that's my opinion. Well, I I think you're right, but I mean, if we all acknowledge it's so terrible. Why do we keep it as a rite of passage every Halloween? I mean, you, you have to. It's America, right? I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Uh, uh, life, liberty, and candy corn. Uh, this is We played this last year. I, I, I didn't even remember that I talked about this last year. I guess this is my annual rant. of It's sort of the daylight saving time of Halloween. I have to rail against... Can I have the candy corn downstairs? Candy corn. Girls love them. She was shopping in the grocery store for candy corn with her mom. What can I get for you? Candy corn. Small bag. Okay. Danny loves candy corn, so every Valentine's Day, that's what I make him. Candy corn. 800 is my longtime nemesis. 800-848-9222. Joe is in the Queens. Hi, Joe. Yeah, Frank. Uh, I think it's 100 percent or sheer sugar what what, uh, what do you think I, I 
that's that's how I look at it. Well, uh, look, I, I don't think any Halloween candy is exactly a health food, Joe. I, and I don't think, you know, I don't think anybody is expecting. Well, first of all, even real corn doesn't have that much nutritional value. But candy corn, I, I don't think it's, I mean, it's all horrible for you unless you're getting fruit or something. I mean, uh, it's all terrible. I mean, are we going to sit there and say that Smarties are, are good for you or uh or milk duds or snow caps. I mean, they're they're all sugar. It's just, I mean, that's the reason you only do it maybe once a year. Well, with that product, when they make a product uh, like that, is it in contemplation of having like a tremendous amount of sales around now? Or do they hope to sell that like with some consistency during the year? That would be my question on a product like that. You know, it, it's funny. The original name, I don't know the answer to that question, but the original name of candy corn, it came about in the 1880s, um, was chicken feed. That was the original name. And they would try to feed it to chickens and chickens wouldn't touch it. They found it absolutely as revolting as I do, and so they manufactured all of this chicken feed, and they said, what can we do with it? And they said, well, I don't know. There's some kids coming begging for food. They'll probably eat anything. Oh, it's Halloween. Uh, Let's give it to the kids begging for food. And, well, we can't really call it chicken feed. They're not really chickens. Let's call it candy corn. And that's the story from the 1880s till today. Um, born in Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, by the way. But yeah, of course you're right. It is just, it is just sugar, uh, sugar, corn syrup, which is just sugar, then some kind of wax, and of course some sort of artificial coloring. I'm sure. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. But yesterday was indeed National Candy Corn Day. Johnny's in Sullivan. What's on your mind, Johnny? How are you, Frank? Uh, candy corn, I think it's just a symbol of Halloween. That's all it is. Just the, just the sight of the thing. You only see it around this time of year, which, by the way, Halloween is my favorite holiday, if you call it a holiday. It's not religious. It's not political. It's just a great festive holiday. Um, as far as the candy corn goes, I think if you did an analysis of what it is, what it actually consists of, it's got to be probably the worst thing on earth you could put into your system. Oh, of um, course it is. Uh, the sugar. The, the 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 what it feels like when you're biting into it. Uh, I don't even know what it call what you what you could even call it. There's nothing on earth that I've ever eaten that that compares to it. And I'm sure if you ate it on a regular basis, uh, your arteries would be clogged within like three months. So it, to me, it's just, it's just a symbol. Like when you go in a candy aisle to get the candy for the kids, which by the way I have to do that today. I always wait to the last minute. You'll see it there. It's just your reminder that it's Halloween. Get the candy and everything else. That's basically all it is to sight of it. Uh, thank you, Johnny. You know, I got a very surprising SMS text message here. We have a, uh, a salesperson here at our radio station. Her name is uh, Lisa Orban. Nice lady and a decent salesperson. I understand she's a pretty good singer. Uh, I haven't heard her sing, so I, I can't speak with certitude. And I've always heard that she's the cousin of Viktor Orban, the authoritarian president of Hungary. And I was very surprised because Viktor Orban has a reputation as being kind of, I don't know, mean and very hardline and very not exactly an easygoing kind of a authoritarian leader. 
And Lisa is just the opposite. She's very flexible, very nice, so forth. She just sent me an SMS text message, and you can do the same at 8168Morano. She just sent me an SMS text message that she loves candy corn. And now it all makes sense. I knew that this woman had to be flawed in some way. She said, you know, it makes the medicine go down. A spoonful of sugar, which is what candy corn is, makes the medicine go down. I don't get it. To me, it's a spoonful of rancid-tasting wax. That, that is the medicine. That should cure something. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Eric is in Manhattan. Hi, Eric. Hey, Frank. Um, in X-Files, the villain um, has a monologue about life is like a box of chocolates. And one line is, you mindlessly, you mindlessly wolf it down when there's nothing left to eat. But it's just like you can't, it's, you can't stop eating them, you know. I, I, I found that sometimes. But oh yeah, no, no, I, I can absolutely good. stop. Uh, I can absolutely stop eating them. You know, I seem to remember, and I tried to find the clip before the show, but now I have 365 days to try to find it for le- for next year when I do a similar rant. There was an episode of Mad About You where, and again, I haven't seen this since it was on, probably 25 years ago, where um, there's a character that Paul Reiser is working with on a on a shoot and i think it was played by larry charles who's a brilliant guy who i'd love to get on this show he's a great comedian you might remember him he played the doorman on seinfeld and larry charles i think it was larry charles again i haven't seen it in 25 years is obsessed with candy corn he even sings about candy corn it's really interesting and if i'm remembering the premise of this particular episode and i do pride myself on my um, my memory I think um, Yoko Ono is in this episode, and she hires these guys to make a documentary about the wind. And they have no idea how to make a documentary about the wind, but uh, they don't want to tell Yoko Ono no. I think I think that's it. I think it was. I mean, I'll look that up. Gene uh, is in Manhattan. Hi, Gene. Hi there, Frank. As a kid in Parkchester in the Bronx. I always wanted to get quantity for my allowance money, and Woolworths always had lots of candy corn at Halloween, the same as they had lots of red cinnamon hearts at Valentine's Day. And uh, so you got it not because you enjoyed it, but because of the the quantity of the candy. The same, the same as when I went to the movies. Couldn't plenty, anything like that, as much as you could get for your money. I like it. I, I makes sense, Gene. But um, now, do you have any idea if it's expensive now? No, I don't buy it now. Well, what what if I'm people 80, not come not? I'm eighty six. I'm into I'm into other kinds of things. I bet it. But what if somebody comes knocking on your door and says, "Look, goes trick or treating today. What are you going to give them?" Ah. Uh, not quite sure. I don't plan to be at home for for Halloween. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't blame you. Probably in Salem, Massachusetts with everybody else. Thanks, Gene. 800-848-9222. Gary calling from New Hampshire, a place where Dean Phillips is now on the ballot in the Democratic primary. Congratulations on that, Gary. Uh, very good. Can I give you my three favorite uh, Halloween candies? Lay it on me. Snow caps, but they never pass it out, if you know what snow caps are. Right, I get that at the movies, love it. Very good. Uh, Mellow Cup. What was that one? 
Mallow Cup. Mellow, M-E-L-L-O? No, M-A, Mallow Cup. Mallow Cup. I imagine it's marshmallow-based. Yes, it is. It's from a, co- uh, a company named Boya. You can look it up on your laptop. And the last one, Sky Bar. And as I hang up with you, uh, Frank, I have only one word for you, Frank. Are you ready? Ready. Handsome. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Yeah. Uh, my son says that uh, whatever, whatever I say, good boy, he'll say good boy, and then he'll say handsome. He's calling himself handsome, essentially. All right, 800-848-9222. You know, I, I, I just tried to look up that uh, Yoko Ono episode, and I think I am misremembering it. Larry Charles was not in it. I, I found she was in season four, episode six, and uh, the person I thought was Larry Charles was was not. So, uh, you know what? My memory is good, but I guess it's not great. Oh, by the way, speaking of memory, before we talk to Noam Layden, and we are going to go through the mail in just a moment, 800-848-9222. The, some good news on the dementia front. Dementia risk in the West has dropped despite an aging population. Hello. And health bodies forecast a steady increase in dementia as people live to old age. But a major analysis showed that the number of new cases in Europe and North America, which lo and behold, is the continent that I happen to live in, uh, has been dropping 13% a decade. And even Japan, one of the world's oldest populations, shows similar trends. And they say some of this might be because of improvements in general health. There's been an enormous emphasis on preventing cardiovascular disease. And one scientist told the Financial Times that vascular health, plays a huge role in several forms of dementia, including Alzheimer's. This decline implies 15 million fewer dementia diagnoses in high-income countries than expected by 2040. Now, that's huge. That's a win. That is very exciting. 800-848-9222, Oh, well, you know, i got to give the other side its due before we talk to Noam Layden here. Ray is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hi, Ray. Hey man, I love candy corn. What's it's the, the matter with ever. you? It's, it's nothing but sugar. It's pure sugar. I um, but what about that waxy consistency? You like that? Yeah, you know what? It's not so bad. It's corn syrup, and you know it's got a little bit of wax going on. But it's it's the way like it's the way young people are supposed to get sugar. Well, well, it's well. disgusting, but <laughs> it just like keeps us going. All right, right. Uh, so be it. Different strokes for different folks. I, I imagine that he was celebrating big time for National Candy Corn Day. Hello, Ed. Hello, sir. I want to tell you, tell you the real story about candy corn. It, and um, kudos to the last caller who said, yeah, we can't get enough of our sugar rush. Uh, same here. But it's also known as witch's teeth. And... Um, it's funny how you can only get it once a year, you know, and I love candy corn. But um, candy corn uh, and witches' teeth are steeped in religious tradition of trying to go around scaring people on All, Soul, All Souls Day, which um, people would dress up as goblins and ghouls, and the kids would take this uh, AKA witches' teeth and place it in between their gums, and if they had teeth, the young kids, you know, always losing teeth, um, will go around trying to scare people. 
So hence, witch's teeth. All right. I did not know that. I must say, Ed, you educated me. I do think it was originally called Chicken Feed, though. All right. uh, We'll continue with your calls if there's time. We're going to go through the mail, and we'll chat with Noam Layden. Find out what's in the news that you need to be aware of straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. A happy birthday this Halloween to Dee Sacco. Uh, we had hoped to play some of her bumper, birthday bumper music selections, but she uh, selected songs that uh, we don't have the rights to in our library, and apparently there's a pause on purchasing and licensing any new music. So uh, Dee is a great listener, and uh, all indications are she's a great person. And we wish her not only a happy birthday, but a happy Halloween. Someone we also wish nothing but the best for and want his wishes coming true every day, not just on his birthday, is the one and only. Stand by for the other side of Midnight's News. From New York City, the other side of and its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. Uh, Noam Layden, first let me get you to weigh in on what we've been talking about. How, where are you on? Uh, where are you on candy corn? Candy corn. I like candy corn in small doses. Like if you try to polish off a bag, you start to feel like, oh, I don't really like candy corn as much as I thought I did. Yeah, I got a message from our our colleague, uh, Joe Nolan. He says he he devours that stuff. He even eats candy pumpkins that are made of the same stuff. That is actually, I think, how he had got cancer a few years ago, (laughs) excessive candy corn consumption. Yeah, well, the candy pumpkins, those are a little different tasting than the candy corns. I know what he's talking about. It's like Brock's makes them, I think. And if you wait until the day after Halloween, that bag that's like – it's not expensive beforehand. It's like two bucks. But after Halloween, it's like 50 cents a bag, and you can go totally crazy, Joe Nolan. <laughs> all right. Do you have any uh, any non-candy corn-related news? I, well, I have all Halloween news. Okay, so great. So here's the uh, big story for tonight. Of course, one of the questions that's always asked every year when kids go out is how old – is too old to go trick-or-treating. Do you have a thought on this? Uh, I'm saying for a boy, the cutoff is 12. I think a girl, you can go up to 14. 14. A girl. Why? What, what's the difference between a boy and a girl? I, I, because, a I don't know, odd. I think there are, there's uh, – girls can get away with a Halloween costume – a little bit more easily and they can be they can be cute while wearing a halloween costume later in life than a boy can okay so there are so many rules frank on the books that we didn't have when we were kids you just went out and right. then whenever you were done you came home from mm-hmm. halloween and you 
threw that bag of candy out and you sorted it and you ate half of it if you could, if your parents didn't take it away. Now, of course, we've just laid down all kinds of rules for kids. doesn't matter where you are. So here's an example. In Chesapeake, Virginia, there is a law in the books that threatens anybody that's a teenager, so that's 13 and above, from trick-or-treating. If they catch you, this is on the books you could get up to six months in jail. Well, that's ridiculous. Is this one of those laws that they passed uh, 150 years ago and never repealed? Well, surprisingly, it was put on the books in the 1970s. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's not 100 years ago, but uh, it is a while back. Whether that's ever been enforced, I that's could in not find Chesapeake, out. Chesapeake, Maryland? Uh, Chesapeake, Virginia. It was Chesapeake, Virginia. Yeah. Okay, well, we actually have a lot of listeners. In uh, in Chesapeake, Virginia, my brother-in-law is in Virginia right now, and I would love for someone as an act of civil disobedience to go out there <laughs> right. trick or treating today. And wait, so is teenager the cutoff, or can you be can you be forty five? No, and, uh, the minute you hit thirteen in Chesapeake, Virginia, done. you are done well, that's with not, collecting candy. They should someone should go out and challenge this law. I will work on getting you representation to challenge the constitutionality. I like that. Discriminatory. By the way, similar laws are on the books in uh, Jacksonville, Illinois, uh, Rain, Louisiana. I found a ton of towns that said 13 is the cutoff. Now, there was no punishment. Yes. Uh There was no punishment of six months in jail. That was only in Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, But they said, yeah, they will enforce this. The way they enforce it, if they find the kids, if they really go out and do this, they'll just escort these 13-year-olds back to their house. Which I think 13's not that old. I mean, I think you should be able I to think, collect candy at 13. I don't know. I, I think that's – you're right at the border. You're, you're teetering. But I don't think it's right that they should lock anybody up for trick-or-treating, no matter the age. I don't care if you're 50. Well, let me tell you who they will lock up on this Halloween in Westchester County, which is a county uh, – right, a bedroom community of New York City. Not familiar with it. They have uh, – you've never heard of it, have you? No. Uh, in uh, Westchester County, for the 17th year in a row – Uh, Sex offenders will be taken off the streets, and this is what they will do because they don't want them answering the doors for kids who, uh, you know, these are convicted sex offenders who are now back home. Mm -hmm. They have to show up at the Westchester County Courthouse at 5 o'clock today and have to hang out there until 1030, and this is the reason why. While they are there, the offenders will hear compelling accounts of the devastation that's been perpetrated on children and adult victims, gain insight into how those acts can reverberate all throughout a victim's life. Yes, so these offenders will listen to victims tell their stories, discuss long-term psychological damage, and again, it's all about keeping these guys, these creeps, really, away from kids on Halloween. And it is designed to keep those who are registered sex offenders off the streets not uh, in a situation where they might interact with young trick-or-treaters. Yeah, so in, in Westchester County, you're safe. These guys won't be answering the door. So if you're a convicted sex offender right. and you have served the entirety of your prison yes. sentence, you uh, are in your own home. That's right. Um, you will still n- not have to – you will not be able to stay inside your own home because you have to go to this post-conviction that is training. Correct. Yeah. All right. Yeah, uh, I, I I see. You know. I see people throwing their copies of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights right into their closest shredder in Westchester County. All right. Let me ask. Uh, let me end on a happier note than that. Right. So, um, do you have any idea what the top ten candies in America are today? I I have heard that there are some serious differences regionally. But I'm going to go ahead and say one of them is 
Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Very good. That's the number one mm-hmm. candy in mm-hmm. America right now. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. So, the, being American. The average American child will eat uh, 16 times the daily recommendation of sugar uh, today on October 31st. And um, so that means they'll consume about 7,000 calories. And to burn off 7,000 calories, a child would have to walk 180 miles. Wow. Yeah, well, they do seems, a lot of walking. On, yeah, not 180, not 180 miles. miles no. By the way, uh, after Reese's Peanut Cups, uh, Peanut Butter Cups, the top five, according to this list, there's so many out there. But uh, Peanut Butter M&M's, that seems logical. Regular M&M's is number three. Tootsie Pops, Twizzlers, uh, Hershey's Milk Chocolate, Sour Patch, Kids, and Candy Corn. Oh, makes that list well, as well. Thank yeah. goodness. Thank mm-hmm. goodness Candy Corn made the list. Well, happy Halloween, Gnome right Red. Now, I was gotcha. disappointed that you didn't dress up today. Uh, well, there's still time. It's only uh, 5.30 in the morning. Okay. Yeah. Uh, indeed. All right. Thank you, Gnome. If you're in the New York area, hear more of Gnome in 20 minutes on the News Hour with Gnome, where our friend Joe Nolan will actually uh, be broadcasting from a car dealership. He apparently is moonlighting as a car salesman now. And, uh, you know, radio's tough. you got to do whatever it takes to make ends meet. Meantime, if you prefer the written word to... You correspond, you can send us an email, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. We are overdue with a trip to the post office and because I, I haven't gotten any snail mail in a while. But we do have a lot of other mail, and that will be read on this edition of... Also, uh, a great way if uh, you don't get your letter, your question answered on Ask Frank Anything, it's a great way to get other questions in. All right, uh, this is email. Paul, a UAW strike. Hi, Frank. I'm a fan of unions, an honorary UAW and Teamster member, originally from Michigan. A couple of audio trivia notes. Oldsmobile was born in Lansing, Michigan, the state capital. Flint was Buck County and home to the first 1953 Corvette. You mentioned that Henry Ford realized that his workers needed to make competitive wage to afford his Model T. That's true. Well, of course it's true. That's why I said it. Uh, Ford was a genius businessman. His row... Okay, well, lots of interesting subjects tonight, Frank, as usual. That's nice. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Miss M writes, so aren't you... She's watching Billions Season 7, and every day I get a daily complaint based on whatever episode she's up to. She says, so aren't you fed up with Wendy on Billions? I'm wondering why they chose that actor for Mike, and I'm just sort of over Chuck being a bad guy and Kate having no real point in the series. Kate slash Rashad, it's Felicia Rashad's daughter, is a great actress, and the writers just had no idea what to do with her. You know, let me ask you a question. If you don't like the show that much, why are you still watching? Just stop watching. Why put yourself through the agony of continuing to watch. So you can complain to me about what you don't like. You, I, I want to be very clear. I don't have any stake in the show Billions. I don't get paid if you watch the show Billions. I get no personal pride if you watch the show Billions. I like it. So that's why I watched it. This is from the world of Instagram. Matt McCool writes, Are you still an alcoholic and gambler? Uh, the answer is probably yes uh, to the second question. 
question. I am a gambler. But as far as being an alcoholic, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. But I guess that's what everybody who's an alcoholic that doesn't want to get treatment says. If I am an alcoholic, though, I will absolutely take pride in telling you that it is of the functional variety. And if I am a functional alcoholic, I will tell you I am putting the fun in functional. But honestly, I I don't drink nearly as much as people seem to think that I do. Can't imagine why everybody is under that impression. (coughs) Curtis, Curtis. Um, a lot of people, I'm not going to go through all these, but a lot of people have been writing to me complaining about all of the posts related to the Middle East and to Israel in the Facebook group. And I know it's a lot. Now, a bunch of people have even said they've left the group because of it. I, um, I, I know it's a lot, but look, it's a subject that we've been talking about on the show just about every day. I'm not going to tell people they can't post about it. I do wish, and I made a whole video about this, I do wish rather than creating a new post every time that you had something to say about uh, Israel and the Middle East, that maybe you would just comment on an existing post. But look, something that we brought about up on the show, so um, people could feel free to comment on it. Facebook.com and uh, just search Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, radio fans and haters. Jonathan writes, Dear Mr. Morano, I heard on one of the major news networks, don't recall which, that although the shooter's family knew of his mental health issues, and they're talking about the main shooter, and reported them to both local law enforcement and the military, there was no follow-up. Every time there's a mass shooting, it always comes out after the fact that people knew about the mental issues of the shooter but did nothing. When Card went to the gun shop to purchase a silencer because he did indicate on the application that he'd been institutionalized, the gun shop owner refused to approve the sale. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's exactly right. And then he asked the question, what if Robert Card had lied on the application about his mental health issues? Could you imagine him going on that shooting rampage with a silencer? No, you shudder to think what would have happened. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. We need to do something about mental illness as it relates to guns. What the something is, I don't have an answer for it. But I don't think it involves making it easier to buy a semi-automatic weapon if you've been in a mental institution and threatening to shoot people. Uh, Barb writes, Frank, while Britney Spears usually sings in her little girl chirpy voice, she actually has a good Broadway voice. Britney attended the New York City Professional Performing Arts School when she was young. For some reason, Britney prefers to use her childish, chirpy voice throughout her career. I think her career could. I think her career could really take an upward turn should Britney start using her Broadway voice. I think Britney's voice is fine, and I think her career is doing fine. Um, Miss Stanley writes, touting idiocy. Why do you waste our time and your time talking about nonsense? such as this Britney Spears accusation, which is only being used to sell books. I know your Monday programs are usually light from lack of preparation, but I just turned you off. I couldn't bear to listen to the nonsense and continued promotion of Spears that you were doing by spending 15 minutes talking about her. Intelligent content, please. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Phil writes... Well, actually, no. That requires a longer response. I'm going to hold off on that. Uh, J.H. writes, Frank, I listen to your podcast almost every night. I live in St. Louis, 
And I know you say you're on KMOX, but since I can't listen at KMOX live time, I find the podcast to be great to look forward to each day. Although I thought the Florida segment with the excellent comedians was the best, I have to say I did enjoy the car dealership story a lot, too. Thanks for keeping each evening such a delight to listen to. Janine writes, hi, Frank. Uh, yeah, this is. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically taking issue with uh, Curtis and uh, Sid Rosenberg calling me anti-Semitic and pro-Hamas. I am not anti-Semitic, and I am not pro-Hamas. I think uh, Curtis is just joking, and uh, who knows what's it? Uh, Jim writes on running for office. This was in response to a local commentary I did encouraging people to run for office. Your commentary this morning hit home. I'm currently running for state representative here in New Hampshire. I am currently a town official, but was appointed. I've never run for anything. I might not win, but I'm willing to give it a shot. Everybody who wants to make a difference should consider running. Losing isn't the worst thing. Maybe next time. Jim in New Hampshire. I completely agree, Jim. Wishing you the best of luck in your race. And I hope everybody that wants to improve their community ends up running for office. All right, um, but uh, 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 Kevin writes on the subject of Arthur Avenue. Hey, Frank, I finally took my 89-year-old mom over to Arthur Avenue for lunch today. We went to Pasquale's Rigoletto at your suggestion, and it was great. Many thanks, an avid listener. Kevin, it's a wonderful restaurant. I can't wait to get back there myself. All right, um, Brandon writes... Of Thursday's show, uh, today's show, very entertaining. I hope you're getting some sleep now. Um, and uh, thank well, it's very nice. Thank you, Brandon. Appreciate that. Okay, let me get one or two more in here. Ramel writes, good morning. I agree 100% on Iran and the Iraq conflict. To expand on that, the whole Middle East suffered from U.S. meddling. You're right. Iran is guilty in providing aid to Hamas, and Qatar is guilty for providing safe sanctuary for Hamas leaders. What happens now? Israel seeks revenge and has fallen prey to Hamas. It's Hamas's plan to draw the IDF into the tunnel system. They, the request for humanitarian aid is a ploy to delay the inevitable attack on the tunnels. As you say, to be continued. And, uh, okay. Um, Congress... Good morning, Superstar. We agree with you that the name of the Speaker of the House should be drawn from a bag. We believe that would be the most democratic and easier way. Loyal fans in the disgusting Beltway. Um, now, this is something. Danny writes, subject Danny. Hi, I need a personal favor. Thanks. And then he writes his name, gives me his email. And his phone number doesn't tell me what the personal favor is. Now, why would I call this person? Uh, how about you tell me what the personal favor you need is, and then I'll consider what 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 whether I'm in a position to do it. All right, um, you know I brought to your attention a woman I know who doesn't have any competitive elections to vote in, and she was thinking of not voting. And not just competitive, they're unopposed. Everybody's unopposed. And Bruce writes, why vote? People died for the right to vote. It took blacks and women a long time to get the right to vote. Running for office, you get some tax break. All right. Um, let's do one more here. Um, 
Hey, uh, this is from our friend Obi. Can you please try to screen the letters before you go on air or have a staffer do it? What about an intern? Anyone but on air. When you search through the letters, I can hear the pain in your fingertips and hear the listeners yelling, pick mine, pick mine at the radio or into the air because they have their AirPods trying to be quiet at home or not waking anyone sleeping in the next cubicle. You suck so much, your ratings keep going up, and they renew your contract. I guess there's a reason, so maybe I'm wrong. Ignore me and keep doing what you're doing. And uh, let's do last one here. We'll, oh, I'd like to pick something at least at least somewhat critical here. Um, all right, yeah, this is, uh, well, whatever, I don't know if it's critical. Linda writes... Your October 17th interview with the Arab World News website representative. Hi, Frank. Outstanding interview. You should be very pleased with this interview. You were not rattled in the least by the interviewee's responses to your excellent questions. I think this is Abdel, uh, Abdel Al-Atwan. Abdel Al- I, don't, I don't remember his whole name, but it was Mr. Atwan. Um, you were not rattled in the least by the interviewee's responses to your excellent questions. As usual, your follow-up questions to the responses given by the interviewee were thought-provoking, leading to even more interesting and quite telling conversation. I believe that this is one of your best interviews. Great work. It was an interview that I believe was very much needed. Great show as always. I do hope that Bathsheba, that's our cat, is doing better. It's good that her appetite has gotten better. Thank you, Linda. Very kind. All right, uh, we will do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Halloween Huskers, an instant classic if ever there was one. It is now time for you to be heard, but only for 15 seconds as we embark on another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Jay in Cincinnati. We've graders, candies, and ice cream. The French chews are guaranteed to pull out all that expensive dental work. Mike in New Jersey. Happy Halloween, Frank. Uh, the reason why witches don't have children because their husbands have Halloweeners is only partially true. The uh, other ones don't have them because they're lesbians and they just detest men. Mike in Tennessee. 
Hey, Frank. Uh, I enjoy your show. You tell the facts and try to keep this country together. Thanks, Mike. That's nice of you. Jimmy in Jamaica. Happy Halloween. Roy in New Jersey. Why can't witches have babies? Because their husbands have crystal balls, just like Curtis Lewa. <laughs> Lisa. It's the other side of midnight. Frank Morano's the superstar. Under the moonlight, you see the side that almost stops your heart. It's what it's been. Frank takes you closer, you can make it. That's not bad, not bad. Ted. Yeah, my favorite uh, Twilight Zone was Third from the Sun with Fritz Weaver and Purple Testament. Thank you very much. God Both great. You. Hey, everybody else, we'll get to you tomorrow. Have a great Halloween, everybody. Don't overdo it in terms of Halloween consumption. Don't shoot anyone that drops off goodies at your house. Frank Morano, good day.